VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, February the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you today on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue... 2735211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1888590VOCM which is 8626 well here we are apparently our second weather event of the week but it is absolutely icy and messy a combination of snow freezing rain windy yuck so slippery underfoot slippery under rubber so give yourself a little extra time to get where you're going Safely, well, as you heard Brian Medore say during the VOCM newscast, the King, LeBron James, now the NBA's all-time leading scorer, surpassing the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with his 38,388th point. So he had a step-back jumper sometime late in the third quarter last night to clear Abdul-Jabbar's record, which stood for almost 40 years. Both men did it inside of 20 seasons. Uh, Abdul-Jabbar played 20 seasons, and uh, this is James' 20th season. He's got another couple of years on his contract. So pretty cool stuff. That's a lot of points. He's probably going to hit 40,000 before his career is over. So at one point, there was at least 16 different players that had technically been the all-time leading scorer in league history. But only six of them officially ended the season as the all-time leading scorer. There's no active player within 10,000 points of LeBron James, so pretty big milestone. As much as many people don't really like LeBron James for whatever reason, the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And this is an interesting one from this date in history in sports, and it has some correlations with today. It was today in 1983 that Major League Baseball ordered the great Mickey Mantle, the Mick, number seven, to sever his ties with the Claridge Casino. Because nowadays, you know, not the same as pure as the driven snow, but I do find it quite frustrating to be watching my favorite sports on television, especially North American sports, and we are just peppered and bombarded and battered over the head with all the betting opportunities, whether it be the applications on your phone or updated stats and odds during the games themselves. But I know for a lot of people, that's a fun pastime. Maybe they can nickel and dime it to the point where they don't find themselves in a real problem. But boy, it's just madness out there. And of course, it all stems from the fact that the federal government uh, made it available and allowed by law to bet on a single game. And I know, look, I was in the football pool, I'll be in the hockey pools all the while, but boy, the, the broadcast of sports now is just nothing but. Anyway, this is also an interesting one. It was this date in history, 1998, that the first female Olympic hockey game took place. So up until this point where the, the Nagano games, Canada really dominated the world of female hockey, and they've dominated the Olympics as well. But of course, the Americans caught up quite quickly, and even in that first Olympics, in the head-to-head matchup during the round robin, we had them 4-1, they stormed back to beat us uh, 7-4, and they went on to beat Canada 3-1 in the gold medal game. And maybe one of the finest hockey games I've ever watched for emotion was in Salt Lake City when the Canadians, of course, led by Haley Wickenheiser, beat the Americans on their home ice. So, anyway, first female hockey game at the Olympics this date in history. Okay, so we throw away and throw around millions of dollars and billions of dollars, and people talk about trillions of dollars. It's pretty extraordinary stuff. I mean, I know we can all wrap our mind around tens of dollars and hundreds and probably thousands. Maybe some of you can wrap your mind around millions, but billions. 
You know, we're going to talk about a lot of money here again this morning, but before we get into the health care plan and the pitch made by the Prime Minister yesterday over the course of 10 years, it's easy sometimes to use time when referring to money. A couple of curious ones that I'd like to throw around. If you were paid $5,000 a day from the day that Christopher Columbus landed in 1492, $5,000 a day every day to today, you do not have a billion dollars. I mean, just think about that out loud. Imagine making 5000 bucks a day doing whatever you do already. But imagine getting that every year since 14, every day since 1492, and you don't come up with a billion dollars. Maybe the relationship to time even further. So one million seconds is 12 days. One billion seconds is 32 years. A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. And we've got people on the planet who have billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, there is, I think, a reasonable conversation we had around. It is obscene for one person to sit on an accumulated wealth, say, we'll just pick a number, $250 billion. A million seconds, 12 days. A billion seconds, 32 years. So pretty amazing stuff. All right, let's get to the news coming out of the capital, Ottawa, yesterday regarding the federal health care transfer dollars and the 10-year plan. Okay, so the plan over the course of 10 years adds up to $196 billion in transfer dollars. Now, 46.2, that is what they call new money. Mixed reviews, depending on which premier you hear from, Premier Fury in this province says there's a bunch of big wins in it for Newfoundland and Labrador. Not every premier agrees with that across the board. But anyway, here we go. There's a few interesting things available. There's an immediate $2 billion worth of money coming in the national pool. This province will get about $27 million. 5% guaranteed increase will give the province an additional $210 million annually for five years. So, yes, money is good, and how it's intended to be spent is also really quite interesting. They talk about addressing the pressures on pediatric hospitals, emergency rooms, backlogs, and surgical and diagnostic imaging, and on we go. Here's a couple of fascinating ones, though, that I think, you know, deserve a little bit more conversation. So there's four key areas. So expanding access to family health services, including rural and remote areas, supporting health workers reducing backlogs, improving access to quality mental health and substance use services, modernizing the healthcare system with standardized health data and digital tools. Let's get into that a little further. So they talk about the compilation of data, how the healthcare information is collected, how it's disseminated, shared, used, by Canadians, all, of course, the transparency issue, all the political buzzwords involved with it. Okay, so the compilation of data. It's not only about your personal medical information, and yes, a digitized service is very beneficial because we have healthcare workers working in different clinics or in different hospitals. It'd be nice to go with the uh, touch of a button to figure out who you are and what ails you. But we've just come through... And I don't even know if come through was the right way to approach this, but when our Meditech system was hacked, a lot of our medical information was compromised. So yes, it's great to have a database, but it's more important than ever to have all of the safeguards monitored and improved upon day after day because that information is important. 
Also in the world of collecting data, they're having to put forward a number of residents that don't have a family t- family doctor or regular family health team. We do some of that, but that's done independently by a research firm and numbers that are displayed in the media. And right now we talk about 136,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians without a family doctor. They also talk about the numbers of doctors and nurse practitioners. We can do that. Then I don't know exactly how they evaluate the uh, numbers of people waiting for one procedure or another due to COVID-19. That's sort of a moving target. I'm not sure how they're going to f- uh, figure that out. Uh, the, n- the net new family physicians, nurses and nurse practitioners. Importantly, the percentage of residents between the ages of 12 and 25 with access to mental health and substance use services, and of course, talk about median wait times all the way through. So it's a lot of money. And how it gets spent, you know, that's going to be the trick here. It's got to be very focused, you know, and that, of course, for our government, it's got to be extremely focused dollars because if it all simply becomes amping up the competitive nature of bidding on healthcare professionals, that may not indeed solve it. You know, the health accord and the tenure plan associated with it is important. You know, to modernize healthcare delivery in the country is absolutely important. It hasn't really changed over the last number of decades, we'll say since the 60s or 70s. So that health court and the money that is now being newly injected, it's obviously a good thing. And we'll see, as we all try to assess it a little further, exactly what it means, exactly where it's going to go, how it's going to improve the delivery system, how it's going to improve positive health care outcomes, reduce wait times. Anyway, there's a lot of money on that table. If you want to take it on from any angle, you know the deal. Also in the word of millions and billions, there's... $46 million has been put forward by the federal government for over the next five years to help us have a better understanding of Canada's oceans. You know, remarkably, I mean, water covers about 70, 75% of the planet, and we don't know a whole lot about the oceans. We should be obviously well-positioned geographically and with the support, say, for instance, at the Marine Institute and their simulators and all the people we have working on ocean-related matters. We really should be the gateway, the center of excellence when it comes to deep-sea research or just research period in Canada's oceans. So that money is coming from the Ocean Protection Plan, which has a pot about $3.5 billion. So how we get at that to, you know, talk about marine safety. Uh, Incident response, which we spoke about a little bit yesterday, which not only would include the potential for an oil spill and the fact we're doing these oil burning experiments offshore, which the FFAW have called for an end of, but in the world of marine safety, let's put it out there one more time. In Labrador, there was absolutely zero resources for search and rescue on the water. None. No fast rescue craft, no fixed-wing aircraft associated solely for operations in Labrador. They are working towards more ground search and rescue operations there, but that's one of the things they're working on. And all of this data to help make better policy decisions and further protect the oceans. But we sure absolutely should be right out in front of that particular bit of money. That's coming forward. Stick with healthcare. For, uh, back to healthcare for a second. I'm a little bit confused. In Trapassi, they were told by Bob Fewer, the operator of the ambulance service there, that he was going to withdraw in six months because it was no longer profitable. Then he was on with Linda Swain and said he will not pull his ambulance out until there's an alternative reached. And then, lo and behold, he was going to pull out in July, but a promise has been made between the Premier and Mayor Pennell out in Trapassi that there will be an ambulance where Fewer's is withdrawn. So that's that. Back into the water, or I guess adjacent to the water. Is there an update coming from the town of St. Mary's? So you remember the story. There was an evaluation done of whatever was flowing, the affluent that was flowing out into, into St. Mary's Bay. 
And they did the assessment back in, I think, 2016, and they figured out that they, the affluent, whatever the brawn or the mix between the capelin and the pineapple juice, was killing fish within 15 minutes. They never told the town. There was no further evaluation what it meant for human beings. There was a school about a half kilometer away, and now it's the old circular firing squad or pointing fingers around in circles as to who's going to be responsible. The trick here, and governments are leaning on this, is that the owner is responsible for cleanup. The owner hasn't been heard from for years. I have no idea where the owner is. But you can't let the small town of St. Mary's with about 300 or 310 people living in St. Mary's, to be on the hook for that particular cleanup. And if you've never been there to be exposed to the stink, it's wretched. And as they say, you can taste it. So is there an update? Maybe Mayor Ryan, if you've got something that you can fill us in on, be happy to keep that story on the front burner. Okay, let's talk about uh, some travel-related matters. And there's lots in the travel world. So whether it be the problems that some of the airlines have had and whether or not you have to fight for compensation or what the CTA is doing or not doing, Here's some of the numbers regarding the rebound in travel. Now, early on in the pandemic, we were down to about 5% of normal traffic here at St. John's International Airport. It's now back to about two-thirds of pre-pandemic travel numbers. That's a decent rebound. But here's an interesting story. Okay. So I have no idea how many private jets make their way in and out of St. John's International Airport, but apparently it's about 10% of the landings. That's pretty wild. So there's about 12,000 flights landing each year at this international airport. So that means about 1,200 arrivals were private planes. And apparently there's nowhere to put them. So the gentleman behind Killick Capital, Mark Dobbin, he's going to build a hangar for these private jets. And he says, you know, we've probably lost some business opportunity because those who can afford to avail of chartered aircraft or they own their own private Gulf Stream or what have you, they have nowhere to put it. And so they go back to Halifax or go out to Gander. And so they apparently need this, and it might be good for business. Not that me or you, or most of you, have anything to worry about on that front, because private jet, I've only seen them on the tarmac. (laughs) That's about it. But apparently we're building a new hangar. Or Mr. Dobbin and his partners are building a new hangar to accommodate upwards of five of these privately owned jets or chartered aircraft. Okay. Let's go. So... Post-Fiona rebuild is ongoing, and the stories are truly remarkable, and the visuals still will haunt many, especially if you're in the region. Now, the Canadian Red Cross is talking about their involvement in post-Fiona recovery. Just for some context, in 2016, of course, the wildfires in Fort McMurray, the Red Cross assisted 88,000 households. There was $323 million donated that from individuals, community groups, uh, companies matched by the, uh, the federal government and, of course, money from the government of Alberta. And then into the flooding in B.C., 7,540 households were helped by the Canadian Red Cross, more than $125 million raised. And then they go to Fiona. They helped about 100,000 households. There was $54 million raised. That includes the matching funds from the federal government. In addition to that, there was $30 million put forward by the Newfoundland and Labrador provincial government for rebuild. So there's lots of tangents that we can take on on that front. And this is not to suggest that there's anything untoward going on, but it would be nice to know exactly how the money's been spent. So there has been stories where people were applying for some financial assistance to clean up this bit of debris or another and for some reclamation of some land that had been destroyed by the heavy winds and rain and were denied. 
so we know the 30 million from the province was for rebuild and it, that was important that they did it because there was a lot of folks who of course had no insurance or the storm surge was not covered by their own insurance policy but it would be nice to know again just because like for instance i made a donation i'm sure dave did and i'm sure many of you listening did so where it went and how it was spent i think would be a real help because the canadian red cross does great work they really do they're there when people need them emergency housing or shelter and clothes on your back and what have you but Maybe it might come across as unfair to ask for that money is, but I think it's important. And so they have a ton of volunteers, about a 1,000 volunteers working to help people in the land of Canada post-Fiona. And just a reminder that from Volunteers Canada, volunteer numbers are down across the country. Maybe people reprioritize how to spend their free time. Maybe they've just changed lifestyles. Maybe they have you know, age the number of years and so consequently don't want to do it, or maybe they're working two jobs to overcome some of the cost of living burdens, but cost, or pardon me, volunteer numbers are down across the country. MUN and the Faculty Association. Back to the bargaining table this afternoon. Good. Uh, Bruno Marcocchio, it's effluent, not affluent. You're right, Bruno. Affluent is the folks who need that private hangar for their aircraft. Effluent is the stuff going out into the bay. You're right, Bruno. Thank you, sir. Okay, so the strike. Back to the negotiating table today, and it really feels like the Faculty Association is winning the PR battle. There was a video released by Munn President Vianne Timmons yesterday, not saying a whole lot, but and the university is represented by a couple of different voices, but the Faculty Association story seems to be resonating with the public. Now, some of it, unless you're intimately involved in concepts of collegial governance, you might not fully understand it, but they seem to be winning. We'll see what comes here and how quickly we can have this resolved so we can save the semester. And now there's stories of some of the protesters who are interrupting traffic, which is always the case on picket lines, being bumped or nudged by vehicles. Let's not see that happen anymore. I know you're, everyone's in a rush, want to get where you're going on your own time schedule. So from the strike captains are saying, you can stop every car for 30 seconds. And on they go. So yes, that will in- interrupt the flow of traffic. Of course it will. No interruption of flow of traffic to the emergency room and or the Janeway or what have you. But on other campus locations, let's not hear stories of people getting bumped as they picket on that line. And maybe they got bumped by an electric vehicle very quickly. Now, I will throw it out one more time about who should be responsible for paying for the uh, quick, the fast, or rapid charging centers for your electric vehicle. But there's been research done by a company called Recurrent. And they're measuring the range loss of a fully charged electric vehicle when the temperatures are between minus 7 and minus 1 Celsius. And for most of the vehicles tested, of course, some are better than others, but some of these vehicles tested lost up to 30% of the range in these freezing cold temperatures, which, of course, will have to be addressed if more and more Canadians would be interested in getting an EV because we've got the Canadian winters to contend with. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Whoa, let's see here. From David on Twitter. Nova Scotia is set to be the regional hub for hydrogen with today's announcement. So I'll see what they announced. We are losing the race. Okay, it's, it's an interesting one because the race, of course, is important. And you want to be in on the ground floor. But let me put this out from the broad strokes. There's 31 applications being considered. The amount of land, if all 31 were approved, is enormous. And the impact would be massive. I don't think there's room for all 31. For starters, you know, if they all have an export market, number one, how do you get there? 
how do you get your power to wherever your market would be with a, a signed power purchase agreement? And if it's got domestic use implications, what does that really mean for us ratepayers? So, yeah, the hydrogen question, whether it be World Energy, GH2, or what's going on in the Port of Agentia, all out there for your consideration. All right, our email address is opalonafiosim.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only works when you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Before we get to your calls, I want to say good morning and the happiest birthdays to Marie Knight out in Grand Falls, Windsor. She's turning 90 years young today. Apparently a pillar of the community. She's been working for over 50 years on the sport of softball. So this is from Heather saying happy birthday, Nan, and I suppose from everyone else in her family and all her friends. Happy birthday to Marie Knight. Okay, so let's go. Line number two. Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking the call. I'll just give you a quick follow-up call about that uh Fly fishermen down in Kadivadi Village. Yep, fire away. I'll tell you what happened. I found the Telegram's morning newsroom. Yep. And they say the uh, the person fishing was standing on the slipway down in the, where the book comes out into the salt water. Okay. So I'm saying that uh, the person had the facts wrong when he, he wrote in a letter to the editor of Telegram, criticizing the Telegram. And the fisherman. I say the fisherman was not breaking any rules. He knew what he was doing. He's under salt water, like I was telling you. Uh, Springtime low water mark. He's not a poacher, I say. Okay, I'm sure he appreciates you in his corner, Don. And uh, just to put it out there, because over the years, uh, some of my friends and myself, I've been fishing like that gentleman more. And had people come up to me and say, I'm breaking the law. So a lot of people don't actually know the, the real rules regarding uh, fishing for sea trout bedding. Well, apparently not. I mean, if someone's being deemed or labeled as a poacher when they're not breaking any rules, then obviously they're not poaching. Okay, Betty, thanks very much for your time. and Have a great day. Thanks a lot, Don. Appreciate the update. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, I guess maybe, you know, when someone is absolutely breaking the law, you know, it, you know, they'll see something, say something. I get it. But sometimes if you're unsure, there's a bit of gray area. Maybe it's uh, like one of the callers yesterday. Maybe the last final caller of the day yesterday was a bit of mind your own business. is not bad an idea either. Uh, let's go to line number one. Mary, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi there. How are you doing today? Not too bad, Mary. How about you? Not very good, because I got COVID. Oh, no. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm miserable. Oh, no. I uh, hope you're okay. I'm wondering how come, like, seniors that's living in their own house and having home care can't get the same money as people in home care? What does that mean? Like, uh, okay... They only get so much money out of their check. Now, I get my check. My check goes out only myself here. Like, I had paid the light bill, the phone bill, the satellite bill. I had paid for home care. I have asked, I had to get a piece of down downstairs. I had to pay $50 for that, and I got blue class, and I had to pay for a chimney. And, like... Only for I have home care for five hours a day. I be I would say the word on the line. But it seems like 
Okay, Wendy, I'm not criticizing the Ukrainians, but they helped the Ukrainians to come here because of the war up there. But why can't they help us to give us another bit of money? So you need more money or you just need more home care support? I need more money. Well, I'm paying $128 a month for home care for five hours a day. That's all I have. How I'm, much? Here, I'm here the rest of the day by myself, myself and two cats. How much additional home care support do you need, Mary? Well, I, have, I pay $128 for home care. Right. That's what comes out of my check. Okay, so you say you get five hours a day. Do you need eight hours a day? Do you need 12 hours a day? What do you think is the appropriate amount of support? Every time you get the increases, you have to pay more money out of your check. And, like, I can't afford it because I have to buy groceries. And I have to just get somebody to bring me out. And I can pay all the bills besides. And not to get too into your own personal business, but what kind of support do you get in the home? Do you need actual physical medical support or someone to help clean up or to cook? Or what uh, kind of uh, support do you get? I, the girl comes, she gets my breakfast for me. Well, she don't have to you. She comes at 10 o'clock. She gets my breakfast and she has, gets my dinner. And she has supper, something there for supper. She stays for five hours. She does the cleaning, but the only cleaning is down the downstairs. My house is a two-story house. What do they call it? My soft box house? Yeah. So, uh, because when I came here, that's what I came into. How long uh, you been in your home, Mary? We were here now. Well, my husband was here longer than me. He 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 was be six years dead now in March. Mary, I mean, I know, and I talk about this a lot, is that people, by and large. Uh, I hate to be, you know, using the general broad sweeping references, but I think a lot of seniors anyway really do want to stay in their own home for every reason you can think of. Some may indeed think, you know what, I do need a certain level of care, so maybe long-term care is for me. But so many more would like to stay in their own home. Well, I'm staying in my own home because I got a walk-in shower and everything. Okay, yep. Like the room, and uh, it's like a jail cell. It's eight by ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least the door's not barred behind you when you go in. Right. At least it's not uh, the door's not barred behind you when you go in the no. room. Okay, so you know whether it be uh, did, I'd like to see the math sometimes because every single case is different, and of course we know that to be true. You know what's the cost efficiency or savings to government to have more support for people to stay in their own home versus be a resident in a long-term care facility because. From where I stand, it looks like people who don't need, for instance, 24-hour care is its own standalone world. But for folks who need less than that or half of that or maybe a, a, a third of that, it probably costs less to keep people at home versus in a care facility. So that's sort of the stuff we're working towards. And I know that the Seniors Advocate was talking about uh, more money. because where the food has gone up, the fruit, sure. the vegetables and the meat and everything, you know. You're not eating much vegetables or fruit or anything as you should be. And milk has gone up. You know, everything has gone up. So we can't get the good nutrition 
yeah, it's harder and harder to stretch your check to cover all the stuff you were used to, let's say, three years ago compared to what it costs today. And that's for almost everything that we Although see. I was touch. doing the same thing three years ago. Were you? Boss, I used to get help. I used to go to the Salvation Army, but I have no way to get to the Salvation Army because we only got home care for five hours. Where's the Salvation Army out in your neck of the woods? It's not out here. It's out in St. John. I was going to say, I'm not familiar with any supports out. You're out in St. Mary's Bay. I know where you are. Yeah, it's uh, in Mount uh, Pearl. Yeah. I appreciate the call, Mary, and this is a similar circumstance facing a lot of the province's seniors, and there was some news coming from Susan Walsh, the advocate, talking about that the federal government is considering an aging-in-place benefit, which would be absolutely something that would help you, in addition to whatever else the province could or should do. Uh, I have to talk to Mr. McDonald, and he said he's going to try to do stuff. That's three years ago, and he's still never done anything. Well, I mean, of course, he could be working towards that uh, aging in place benefit. I hope you're doing okay, Mary, and hopefully you get through the COVID sooner than later. Well, I assume he 10 days on it. Oh, is that right? I assume have it for 10 days. Well, get well soon. Bye. Hope you get well soon, Mary. Thanks for the call this morning. Okay, thank you. You take good care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's try to hit a break on time. When we come back, we're talking 811, and then the topic after that, completely up to you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Um, I'm calling about the 811 number. Okay. It's not working for everybody. Um, you know, I'm after having to call it a couple of times. And uh, it once because I couldn't breathe, which I didn't know if I had pneumonia or what, but they gave me medication. That helped a bit. But then uh, between the coughing and the shoveling, my back went out of whack. And then I had to call them again to see if I could get something for it. They gave me medication, but it wasn't working. So I called back again, and they told me to call the pharmacist. So I called the pharmacist, and the medication they gave me for, for my back, and he told me I need to, to go see a doctor. So, you know, the part is, by losing your family doctor, you know, I, I got injured at work through no fault of my own, and sometimes my back flares up, and I need a doctor to be able to see me. And then, like like, like I said, the, the number just isn't working. And it, I got so frustrated this week with pain, losing sleep, and everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm picking it out on people. Patty, I'm used to being um, an independent woman. And and trying to and I shouldn't have to depend on my children to do stuff for me. Sure, just very quickly, Roz. You say it's not working, so you called once. You got some uh, medicine. It maybe I, didn't work the way you were hoping to. You called again, and they suggested that you have to see a doctor. So how is it not working for you? Because at some point, a registered nurse on the other end of the line can only do so much. The the potential to need to see a doctor is always going to be there. So what do you mean by it's not working for you? It is. It's just that I got a call there a number of times so often because, you know, on weekends you, you're, you haven't got a doctor to see. 
So you got you got you got to call the the eight one one number. And the party is like I said, these people don't know me about medication. And God bless her heart, she gave me medication for my back. And it wasn't strong enough, so I called back again to see if I could take extra in it. But I'm not—I never got enough medication to, to, to last me, you know. And um, I know it's not their fault, you know. It's like I said, the fault is if I had a doctor that I could call regularly and and be checked up. Like I said, Patty, I had a stroke 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And my husband passed, so I mean, I haven't got nobody to help me. So, and I don't want to have to depend on my children. They're working full time. They haven't got time, and they got young families. They haven't got time to give their to their parents only when they're off. And 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 when they're off, it's not always a good, you know, good for me. Does you your know? do your children it, live close by? What? Do your children live close by? I'm just curious. Do they live close by? Right. Yes, they do. Okay. They, I'm lucky that way. They do live close by. But, I mean, it's not all the time. Like, if I need to get out, I need to shovel. Ross, so obviously you do not have a family doctor. No. No. Are, are you I trying? Because he was sick. Okay. Are you trying to get one? Yes, I'm trying. I called the number. I, when the clinic told me about the number, I called them and put my name on a list for a doctor. So you're on the patient connect list like I yes, was. Yes, hopefully that I can get a doctor soon. I was surprised last time that we got the updated numbers from the Medical Association. It went from 125,000 people in the province without to 136. So while the province says, you know, that we've recruited X number of doctors up from one program or another, you know, obviously we've had a net loss of doctors if so many more people in the neighborhood of 11,000 additional uh, residents do not have a family doctor. So, you know, and I've heard comment from some people across, uh, you know, when it, in reference to the 10-year plan announced by the Prime Minister yesterday, and including comments come from Mayor Barry Manuel out in Grand Falls, Windsor. One key area where we can indeed make a positive difference is shoring up more and more, whether it be family doctors or nurse practitioners or licensed practical nurses who can deal with a lot of these issues. Like uh, to me, it doesn't sound like you actually need a doctor. You could probably be well served by a nurse practitioner in this case. Yes, if I didn't have to pay for it every time I went. Right. You know, even that, you know, like I said, they're not making it convenient for people to try to stay by themselves, really. You know, like like I said, I don't want to go into a home. I don't want to go to hospital because I know I'm not dying. Right. You know, I know I'm not critical, but I mean, I need medication every now and then. And, and to be able to pick up the phone and call a doctor and say, I need to see you, it would be great. Yes, that it would. So many people would wish the same thing because obviously so many of us, well, actually, I do now have a family doctor. I was lucky. I was on that Patient Connect wait list for months and months and months. I was a really long time waiting, but then finally I got into the clinic on Monday Pond Road, and I really like my doctor, so I'm lucky. I haven't had a family doctor for well over a decade before oh. I got this doctor, so all right. I hope you're doing okay. What, so what are you taking for your bad back? Uh, well, they is gave a, me medication. Is it a pre- is it a prescription it's, it's drug? Prescription, yes. Okay. Because I had to call the parent. It, it was too weak to take, so she thought I were I guess were I'm elderly that I was going to fall, and she only wanted me to take a half a pill. Okay. And that wasn't uh, any good, so I called back to see if I could increase it. 
So, uh, and then she told me to call the pharmacist, which I did. But he told me two rounds you need to see a doctor. Right, okay. You know. Well, so, and, and the part is, it's, it, I had to get a friend, because I took medication yesterday, I had to get a friend to drive me out to make an appointment. Because I can't get online. Because I haven't got a computer. And my children, like I said. I know, I heard you. I understand. You know, and yeah. um, people don't realize it's not everybody is able to get on computers and stuff, you yeah. know? Yeah, because I, I know you don't use a computer, which is why I wasn't going to say maybe a virtual care appointment can satisfy you on this front. But I, I already knew you didn't use a computer, so that's why I didn't mention it. I hope you're doing okay, Roz. Take care of that back. And thanks for your time. And I hope, you know, that, uh, that our premier is listening this, you know, that we need doctors, you know, if not, pay for the nurse practitioners so we can sign up for one of them, anybody to help you out. Appreciate the call. Thanks for this. Thank you for listening, Penny. Take care, Ross. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Uh, on that front, you know, there were some concerns, and they probably still uh, persist to this day, is that 811 is now the go-to for the mental health or the mental crisis line. It used to be a standalone number, and now soon coming to the country is uh, is 988, right? Yeah, 988, three-digit number for mental health services, addiction services, and that's why I believe on the 1st of April we're now going to have to dial the 10 digits to call locally. So if you want to call up to moms, you have to dial 709 and then the number and all the work we're going to have to do to adjust our address books. But that's a good idea to have a uh, a dedicated three-digit number for crisis uh, services because, you mean, you might know the number where you live, but you might be somewhere else in the country when you need that type of service. And, you know, time is of the essence, so it's nice to have a standardized number there. But mental health services and those types of calls, they're now encapsulated inside the uh, 811 Healthline number. There's a registered nurse on the other end of the line, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you will indeed be transferred to someone who can deal with your mental health concern, if indeed that's why you call. You know, and then there's some of the services out there, like Bridge the Gap with a double P. But we cannot turn our heads away. And, of, of course, the federal government recognizes, and I would imagine provincial governments recognize across the country, that that sort of commitment for access to mental health services, whether it be for youth and their addictions or whether it be for access to long-term care and some of the advocates like Christy who are doing such excellent work on that front, this has got to get figured out. It was, wasn't that long ago we were talking about one in five Canadians were impacted with a mental illness. That number, as you hear from the, like the Canadian Medical Association or the Mental Health Association and others, now we're talking about one in four. So it's going the wrong way. In addition to that, when you call 811, some people are quite pleased with the help that they get. And yes, people are availing more and more of virtual care. And we've got to have a better understanding as to why there's a cap on the number of patients you can see. Why we're capping patients when there's uh, long backlogs and wait lists I really don't understand, whether it be for virtual care patients or for instance, folks waiting to get a cataract surgery. Because now we, uh, we absolutely understand there's... If you get your cataract surgery, you have a 29% chance, less of a chance, of getting dementia. So some of these connections have got to be addressed and understood by these caps and and those who set them. In the world of phoning for help, this one got a lot of feedback when it was uh, initially making waves and headlines, is of course phone med. So we have a five-year contract in place with a company called PhoneMed. The Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association are really curious as to how the province is depending on 811 services offered by this private company. For instance, 
the contract is about 30 or 31 million dollars uh, beginning in 2022 runs right to 2027 they anticipate somewhere in the neighborhood if i remember correctly 70,000 calls per year that's 82,000 uh, pardon me 82 bucks a call so and how many people are referred from 811 to say, you need to see a doctor? So we paid $82 to be told I need to see a doctor. If I'm lucky enough to have a doctor, that's one thing. But then we go ahead and see a doctor, and we get MCP billed by the doctor, rightfully so, as the work that they do. So the value for money spent there seems quite, it's highly questionable. Because if how many people are absolutely just getting a referral to a doctor, and we paid someone 82 bucks to say, go see a doctor. So that phone med issue is a problem. Now, of course, they've got some overhead issues, and they're a for-profit entity, but theirs were some private offerings inside the envelope of healthcare, kind of sneak in a little bit under the radar. We know some of the big headline stories with in Ontario and more and more orthopedic procedures done in for-profit clinics, even though you use your in their province it's called OHIP but their MCP card but that phone made that got a lot of attention there when it was first making news imagine 82 bucks and then the result well go see the doctor let's see here let's take a break when we come back we're speaking with you on the topic of your choosing don't go away welcome back to the program uh, an issue uh, listeners are curious as to why we're not talking about it today and we've talked about it a lot, and happy to do so again this, uh, this morning, is the testing issues regarding the reliability at Muskrat Falls. Uh, it's sort of fascinating that people don't think we talk about Muskrat enough, but anyway, for just the most recent update we've got from Hydro, is that there's one more 700-megawatt test coming for power flowing across the Labrador Island link sometime closer to the end of the month. And the thought is, if it's unsuccessful, then we probably will have to wait again till next year, next winter, before the final testing and hopefully final commissioning and they can figure out the gremlins or the bugaboos in that particular software. And the reason why, and this is directly from the Hydro's VP of Engineering and System Operations, that's, his name is Rob Collett. To reliably send that much power into the system and, more importantly, be able to withstand the sudden loss of that power should tests go wrong, we need to have a lot of generation online and places to sync that load, including sending power off to Nova Scotia. And again, you know, you take that sentence or that run along one step further. We've been able to piecemeal and scrape up the power to meet our ob contractual obligations in Nova Scotia, all the while me and you, the actual people on the hook for this boondoggle are still waiting to see if it's ever going to work and where the price tag actually stops right now we're still at around 13 and a half billion dollars no update in the recent past but every day that passes it doesn't stand still that particular number anyway let's keep going line number one don you're on the air how you doing today sir not too bad don how are you well i'm doing i'm still here <laughs> now i'm just wondering we're always complaining about a shortage of doctors and nurses True or false? Well, yes, true. Right. Now, where did all the doctors go from here? You can't give me a number on that, I bet. Can anybody? Well, you got numbers on. We got a shortage. Now, here's the problem I got. Okay. Doc, Dr. John A. didn't have no problem filling up these clinics with doctors. Where'd they come from? They didn't come from away. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what the point is, though, Don. What are you trying to say here? Here's the point is we're always saying we got uh, a shortage of doctors, but yet you got two clinics in St. John's can be filled up immediately. No no problem at all. 
That's true. Now you got nurse practitioners leaving, opening their own offices and taking LPNs with them, and they can't even prescribe a sleeping pill for me. Why not? Because you can't, they're not allowed. Not allowed to prescribe a sleeping pill. I didn't know that that was one of the restrictions that they faced. But the numbers of doctors, I don't know which side is the most explanatory side to take on this, but the fact remains. A couple of things that are counterintuitive. There's more doctors here than ever before. But the question is, what are those doctors doing? Are they simply working in research? Do they have full patient rosters? Are they working full-time or part-time? So we don't know. That breakdown, I think, would be important to understand. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the point you're making about filling up a clinic with doctors in St. John's versus other places. I guess that's part of the complexity of how you recruit a doctor to want to work in more rural and remote settings versus in the, in and around the capital city, around the Northeast Avalon. This is what I'm trying to explain. Okay. These doctors at the Collaborative Clinics, where do you think they came from? They came from the rural areas. Lost two here in Stephenville to that Collaborative Clinic. They moved from Stephenville to town to work in one of these clinics? Yes. Okay. And that's also part of it. You know, it's one thing, and I think the collaborative care clinic concept makes a lot of sense. It really does. Because not everybody who goes to a clinic needs to see a doctor, uh, an MD, a GP. There's other healthcare professionals that can satisfy their needs. But the concept only works if we're adding doctors to the system, not just moving them around. But this is the problem I got. They're moving them around. (laughs) But, of course, the doctors can work where they want. You know, that that makes it extremely difficult. But now one of the well, clinics what here. What I'm trying to say, I'm on the west coast. My leg cut off. I need service. I got to go to St. John's. That's when I asked you about the new hospital at, uh, about three weeks ago. You said it made more sense to put it in St. John's. Why not put it in Grand Falls? Let St. No, John's no. come to us. They're talking about you're you're talking about replacing St. Clair's, right? Yeah. Well, does it make much sense to let's say they close St. Clair's? You're suggesting it makes more sense for the replacement hospital to be built away from where most of the people live? Well, see, that's the problem, where most of the people live. I got to travel 700 kilometers to go to St. John's to get my care. So why can't we split the middle here? Really, why can't we split the middle? Why can't people come from St. John's to Grand Falls and port a bass go to Grand Falls too? for travel expenditures and all that. Won't the hospital, the new hospital in Cornerbrook, be able to satisfy whatever needs you have? What what specialties do you need to deal with that are not going to be in that hospital in Cornerbrook? Well, first of all, they're trying to fight about that one. You got no, I forget the name of the, the service was supposed to go there, but it ain't going there. Cathopedic or something some kind of procedure that I can be able to do in Cornerbrook. Northern Peninsula in Quebec, Northern Peninsula Labrador would, if they put that radiology or some kind of system in there. There is radiology going in Cornerbrook. I mean, the big racket, of course, was about whether or not there should be a CAT scan. And that's it. Yeah, the, and there is going to be a CAT scan in Cornerbrook, right? I don't know. The trick is whether or not they can staff it. The same question I asked Dr. Connors yesterday, the clinical chief of cardiac care, is why wasn't there consideration of putting a catheterization lab in Cornerbrook? You know, because everyone fought about the big ticket item, the big shiny thing, which is a CAT scanner. And he explained quite clearly, and I think this is the problem they're going to face in Cornerbrook potentially as well, is you need such specialized professionals to work in a cath lab, just like you do in a CAT scan lab, that whether or not we actually have them, regardless of where the unit is, is the big floating target. 
target, the moving target. So Dr. Connors, from where he sits, and he'd know more about it than me, is that he doesn't think there's uh, enough staff to even have added a cath lab in the new, the newly built or soon to be finished uh, Cornerbrook Hospital. So, yeah, I guess it all boils down to staff. And this is not speaking from a position as someone who simply just lives in the east end of town, but I don't know how much sense it makes to put a new hospital, if indeed we ever replace St. Clair's, somewhere away from the Northeast Avalon. It doesn't have to be in St. John's. I mean, if it was in Paradise or Conception Bay South or Mount Pearl or what have you, but somewhere close to where about half the population of the province actually lives. It, it seems to me we'd be creating a problem by building it elsewhere. Well, it don't seem to me. I mean, give every Newfoundland their fair chance at hospitalization or... Oh, I know. I get where you're coming from. I mean, if it makes life a lot easier for folks in Central, now there is a hospital in Grand Falls, Windsor, and there is a hospital in Gander. And whether or not that satisfies the entirety of people's needs, obviously not. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can't get anywhere but in St. John's. For I know. I got, I got a grandniece got to travel here with a brain tumor head to St. John's every three months. And that's money. <laughs> of course it now, is. Now, if, if you're going to hire a doctor, you're going to hire anybody. As I'm concerned, if the job is there for them, they'll take that job. A doctor will if take you moved the job. Out, you lived in Alberta. I did, yeah. Right. So you took a job because the job was there for you. That's right. Right. So why can't somebody move to Grand Paul's Windsor and take that job? But it's only if they want the job. See, that's the big ticket item here is it's fine to say we have a vacancy. Doctors welcome to work wherever, in Stephenville or in Gander, Grand Falls, Happy Valley Goose, wherever we're talking about. It's fine to say we have a job for you. It's quite a different yeah. issue as to whether or not the doctor wants that job because but the doctors can work wherever they want. There's a problem I got. What's that? There's more enticement to work in St. John's than it is in the That's the not true. Areas. That's not true. Yes, it is. No, it's not. The John Hagee stock up to a clever care clinic. No, there's not more. There's no more incentive dollars and cents wise to work here. In fact, the exact opposite is true. There's monies being dangled out for family physicians to set up shop in rural, remote parts of the province, and in three years with a full patient roster, get a bonus of $100,000. So the only incentive that people would be given is the fact that they'd be living in the urban centers. That's And that's nothing to do with the government. The fact is, that's just the case. That's the way it works this is the city this is the capital city some people might choose it as part of the incentive but it's not because government put it forward it's simply because that's the reality but more incentives okay. to work outside of the northeast avalon are absolutely in play okay so is the government going to entice somebody coming to grand falls or corner book with a hundred thousand dollar pay simple as that okay i appreciate the time don hope you're doing okay well no i'm not <laughs> Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, I look. if I was living in another part of the province, too, and that's some of the worries that people have, what even reference to the health accord, is what does it mean long-term for access, in close proximity, access to health care, because that's going to be part of the concerns. And, you know, it's not only simply about modernizing the health care system, trying to improve it, but there is going to be big, looming questions about where people are going to be able to get to a clinic and or a major hospital, and it's already happening. So, look, I've, I know there's going to be lots of swats coming my way about any reference to if St. Clair's gets replaced, which kind of came out of nowhere. I don't even know if that's even a conversation being entertained any longer. probably is, but we don't know much about it. If you close that hospital, which is in and around 100 years old, and at some point in the future is going to need to be closed... 
does it really make any sense to build it somewhere off the northeast Avalon? I'll throw it out there for your, uh, your uh, reaction. Because I know full well if you're living in Stephenville and you've got a trek all the way into St. John's for certain levels of care, then you would say yes. But do we potentially try to solve one problem by creating another, right? Uh, anyway, Mark wants to chime in about my comments about the corporate cost. Well, let me get that email quickly before I go. She says, Patty, I said to be correct, but I believe the Cornerbrook issue is not around a CT scan, but around a car- cardiac catheterization lab. No, I think I probably made that issue more than people in the area because when the discussions were ongoing about what services will be available in the Cornerbrook Hospital, Folks in the region were quite adamant that full radiology options would be there, including a CAT scanner. The government will talk about, you know, the national guidelines for how many people living in however, whatever distance from a hospital, whether or not you need a CAT scanner. And for Cornerbrook, it didn't meet guidelines, but the problem said, okay, so a CAT scan will be in. The issue regarding a cardiac catheterization lab is that it was never part of the conversation. I don't, I don't remember hearing one person say, we need to put a cath lab in this new hospital versus all the attention that was given to the CT scanner. And then again, I asked Dr. Connors about it yesterday. He says, given the resources, that the province has currently, even if you built a modern, world-class facility, a cath lab in Cornerbrook, we at this stage have literally zero people to operate it. Now, could you go down the recruitment efforts like we see the province doing with nurses and doctors and radiation therapists and, uh, and respiratory therapists or technicians? Of course. But it seems to be going very slow and very difficult and piecemealing and it's bit by bit. So, yeah, the issue when they were discussing what should be in the Cornerbrook Hospital, the CT scanner dominated the headlines, certainly as far as I can remember, whether it be politicians from the region and or the residents either in Cornerbrook or in close proximity, they would call and say that all the time because the only one that you could get was, of course, in St. John's. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Very quickly, and thanks to Robert, Charles, and others who corrected me, so I'll correct myself here live on the air. Of course, the CT scan is pretty basic radiation or radiology equipment. The clamoring was for the PET scanner, a PET scan. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you corrected me so I could correct myself on the air. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the president of Newfoundland and Labrador Search and Rescue. That's Harry Blackmore. Hiya, Harry. You're on the air. How are you, Patty? Best kind. How are you doing? Good. Okay, so we know there was a massive budget boost for search and rescue. And the next effort now, Harry, is to expand your footprint up in Labrador. How's it going? Right now, it's going fairly good. We have uh, five new teams started. Shesheshine, uh, uh South Coast, we have uh, Fort Ho area. Then we have Mary's Harbor area. And the last area that to uh, get up and running now will be Cartwright. So we've just uh, had our training Provincial Coordinator Mabel Tilly and Scott Yetman up in uh, Southern Labrador getting the team set up with further training to come as the weather improves naturally. Uh, we have two courses done already for Northern Labrador, but now we have to do three more for the Southern uh, side of Labrador. Harry, might be a bit of a silly question, but I mean, your organization does incredible work. And if it wasn't for you, we'd have a lot worse headlines coming out of some of these people who get lost. What were they doing in Labrador prior to this? People just took it upon themselves as community members or families to go out and do the search? Basically, what was done years ago, I guess over the last few years, is when somebody got lost, the RCMP in the area would try to organize people, and people would take it on themselves to go, and did a great job. 
But now that we have uh, an influx of a bit of money from uh, the government, what we're doing as an association is putting everybody on the one footprint. So no difference in a person searching here in the city of St. John's and Sydney than searching in Labrador. Just different terrain, different skills, but everybody works together. And the idea of it is is to make sure that we get everybody out there uh, looking for somebody that's lost and hopefully find them quickly, but also taking care of the safety of our own uh, people that are out doing search and rescue because everybody that we operate with are volunteers. There's, uh, you know, right now we have almost 900 volunteers in the whole province. So it's taking care of those people plus uh, hopefully bringing home the person that we're looking for. Yeah, and the new funding. So it's a million dollars from this most recent budget. That's up from, I believe, the numbers like 190,000 in years prior. So how exactly are you spending that money? You know, training for volunteers is one thing, but what else are you working on? Well, right now we're after buying an awful load of equipment because we're starting fresh with uh, teams in Labrador. We supplied uh, GPSs, in-reach devices, which are satellite communications, uh, ice rescue suits. We've uh, put out uh, mapping, training courses. Uh, You name it right now, we've been putting it in there. Uh, We're trying to get them all straightened up so that everybody can respond with all the safety gear. And uh, it's been over years that we've built up this stuff that we knew we needed. Luckily, we got a bit of money to do it. Hopefully, we will get some more to be able to continue. And uh, then all we do is we just keep expanding with the teams, making sure the proper gear is there. We are right now in the process of moving up generators, lights, stuff like this, and uh, different training materials as we go. You know, there's something that is not always considered, but, I mean, in essence, your volunteers are first responders, and they might come upon some very traumatic scenes, whether it be someone who's lost and has perished. What kind of supports are there for volunteers, even if it's about they didn't find the person they were looking for? Well, right now, how we operate is that uh, we used to use the Salvation Army as our mental support for all our volunteers. Uh, they're... Uh, trainer has been off for a while so right now we're dealing with EAP and the government and also uh, dealing with uh, different organizations uh, with collaborative to operate under mental health issues because as you say it's not always that we uh, will get there and uh, find the person that we're looking for and sometimes when we do find them the things don't look that great so we have to have supports there uh, our mental health issues is a big big part of this and we are dealing through with it it's just that uh, we've only been on the ground with the extra bit of i say money for the last eight months so we're gradually pushing forward and uh, getting it done but we have to work around volunteer schedules and everything else so Things happen. We did have training and things planned earlier last month due to people getting uh, COVID. That was cancelled. So now we're just continuing on as we can, as far as we go. So there was uh, an inquiry into search and rescue. A lot of it stemmed from the story regarding Burton Winters, of course, last seen in the coastal community of Mikovic, died at uh, 14 years of age. But, of course, it touched on a lot of different things in search and rescue. If I remember correctly, coming from Judge Igliorte in his final report, were some 17 recommendations. A lot of them focus on your organization. Where are we on these recommendations? On the recommendations that came out from the inquiry, right now, all the provincial ones, we are working through each one of them. A lot of them we already have uh, are well advanced into them. Some more of them we're still working our way through them because, as you realize, there's a lot of stuff there. And uh, you don't get it all done in months, and we want to make sure we do it properly. So uh, we're getting it all put in place. Uh, it is starting to work out. And uh, as long as we get the support from government for another 
few years for sure. It'll gradually work itself up that we have 31 teams now, counting everything in Labrador and here. Uh, we've also just uh, put our Highline Helicopter Rescue System back in that place uh, through uh, different grants that we got. And uh, we're setting up seven teams with that, and two of them are in Labrador, one in Happy Valley and one in McCovic. So uh, we're gradually moving Patty as quick as we can, but as you understand, and you've been in a lot of volunteer organizations yourself, that you have to deal with the volunteers and their time commitments because everybody's busy and trying to make a living, and this is all sideline stuff, but uh, it's the same as a volunteer fire department. Everybody does the best they can. Last one for you, Harry. So whether it be for the newly formed teams in Labrador or just even replace some people who will age out or they just move away from volunteering on the island, I mean, what kind of person do you need to be this volunteer? I mean, do you need to be an outdoors man or woman or is there something that makes someone a good uh, person to be part of these teams? What are you looking for? Well, right now we're looking for anybody who wants to be joined, joining search and rescue. You don't have to be an outdoors person. There's a lot of jobs in search and rescue that can be done uh, even if you're not capable to go out. It is an advantage if you can go outdoors and you know the land in the different areas. But overall, we're looking for anybody that wants to join, uh, give their best to it. Like I said, the organization, there's a lot of things that happens uh, behind the scenes, uh, just in paperwork and everything else to do with computer systems and stuff like this. Because this day and age, we have to make sure we're like any organization, no different if we were paid, is that we have to keep our documentation in order, as was came out in the inquiry, and make sure that we have all our people fully trained and taken care of. And the big thing is to make sure that we keep taking care of the people that we're dealing with. And as far as we can, we're dealing with both police organizations here in the province, there in CNRCMP, with great support, uh, without the organizations helping us in the communities. We can't keep everybody going. But uh, for the full 31 teams that we have now, we're hopefully that uh, it will continue and uh, hopefully that government will continue to support us the way they should. And when we go with it, the training and everything will follow to make sure that everybody's up to snuff. And uh, even the two teams we did in Labrador, we now have them certified as uh, under the CSA standards, which is the new standard for search and rescue across the country, and uh, even have that done. So we're just gradually working through, getting equipment moved in, but uh, on the ground, doing the best we can with it right now. And like I said, matter of fact, our trainers got back last night, and uh, we already have another training set up for Cartwright coming up at the end of the month. And uh, also for the ice rescue, we uh, will be doing an ice rescue instructor's recertification this week so we can send our instructors up there now in uh, April. How do possible volunteers uh, connect with you? Uh, really good. Uh, all the volunteers that we've dealt with right now have been uh, exceptional, I'll put it that way, in that uh, for people that are getting into it, they're on to us, uh, they're on to Mabel and Roger Gooby, both of them are working with the groups in each area, and uh, we just keep on going with it, and it's, so far, knock on wood, it's been nothing but positive uh, news for all of us. Is there an email or a phone number people should use? If they want to know anything, the best thing to do right now would be go to our website and just drop an email there and it'll go directly to us and we'll take care of it. What's the address? Uh, NLSARA.org. Appreciate the time this morning, Harry. Keep up the good work. Not a problem, Eddie. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Harry Blackmore is the president of NL Search and Rescue. It's great stuff. They're establishing more teams in Labrador, so 31 teams 
doing some critically important work, and it was good news to hear that they were getting a bump in the budget all the way from $190,000-ish all the way to a million bucks. It's going to go a long way. Let's take a break. Don't go away. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Okay, again, I know that I absolutely blew it. I was wrong and corrected myself. I misspoke. I should know better. But I do appreciate when people chime in and correct me when I'm absolutely wrong because being right is hopefully what we're trying to achieve here. So, yes, in the Cornerbrook Hospital, it was not about a CT scanner, a pretty basic piece of equipment. It was about a PET scanner. So, yes, you're absolutely right, and thank you for the notes to let me know that I was wrong. So self-correcting myself right now for all of our benefit. The issue was not about a CT scanner. It was about a PET scanner, the PET scan, which, of course, much more advanced piece of equipment. Let's go to line three. Bill, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Uh, I'm not doing too bad. I just uh, got prompted to call in when I heard that gentleman from the West Coast talking about... Uh, the affairs getting back and forth in St. John's. Uh, I live on the West Coast as well, and 20 years ago I had the opportunity, or unfortunate opportunity, I had a heart attack and had to be flown in air ambulance in St. John's. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same old story here on the West Coast. We're always, ever since I was a boy that I can remember, uh, it's the same old thing. Everything we ever had on this West Coast has all been taken into St. John's. And the cost of anybody having a heart attack and being transported back and forth to St. John's, not only by, uh, by the government, but the cost and the stress of them having to go themselves for seven, eight-hour drive in all kinds of bloody weather conditions, it only makes sense that we have uh, a, a localized... If you can't get it here on the West Coast, at least get it in Central, where it's not so hard on people. And again, uh, it looks like this hospital that's going to open in Corner Brook is only a bloody glorified clinic because we, we're not getting anything. And you know, Patty, I can remember back years ago, everything we had here, Light and Power had an office here, that went to St. John. Uh, uh, Bell Telephone had an off- office here, that went to St. John. And now it's a bloody nightmare for a senior, especially a senior citizens, to get on a telephone and try to reach some of these people and go through all the rigmarole, especially if you're illiterate, which I'm not, and I, I'm fortunate I have a pretty good education under my belt, but when they get on the phone to uh, try to call somebody and try to speak to a human being, I mean, it's crazy. But I agree with that gentleman. It must be, it is very, very stressful having to wonder how you're going to get in there every time you you get sick or need, uh, you know, you get a heart attack or God forbid. And, and it just, uh, when I heard that this morning, I just had no other choice but call. I'm glad you did. So when it comes down to... Uh you know, services available in one part of the province or another. When it comes to a company like Newfoundland Power, who, which is part of Fortis, or Bell, the telephone company, or others, I don't know what anyone can do on that front when they consider to relocate. But when we have discussions like whether or not Marine Atlantic should relocate, or whether or not a, uh, a particular healthcare service should relocate or does relocate, or where the jobs are, and I think that's the next one that we're going to be talking about, is when all the four regional health authorities are all blended into the department, where are those jobs going to be? Because well, if, they're, if they all flow to St. John's, there'll be a lot of upset people, and understandably so. 
But just think of the, the, the expense to the government, because most people get reimbursed so much for their travel expenses. And the flying back and forth from Labrador and from here and air ambulances when people get heart attacks or get, why don't we have a cath lab over here? And now I heard you say, where are you going to get the people to work there? Well, I, I'm going to tell you, Patty, there must be people out there qualified before, uh, except for the crowd in St. John's. But it's not me saying it, though. See, I asked that directly of a doctor who works in the field. It's not me saying you can't have one. In fact, I, I asked the question in the exact opposite angle is, wouldn't some services that more people need versus a PET scanner, more people would need a cath lab, why don't we have one of those in Cornerbrook? And I asked that to the clinical chief of cardiac care for Eastern Health, and he says, we barely have enough to operate the one facility we have in St. John's, let alone well, to put a full that, staff in Cornerbrook. So that was his well, comments, not mine. Case, if that's the case, Patty, go, go look somewhere else for these qualified people to run a cath lab. My God, we're not the only place in the world. You no. know, come on, there's got to be people out there besides the crew and god bless them they're doing a great job in st john's i know that but there's got to be other people capable of running a cat lab besides the, the people that are in st john's go look for them but it's it's the same old story here our our bloody health care is gone there's i can give you an example a friend of mine 80 years old a lady uh, about three four weeks ago was very 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 sick and she went to the Cornerbrook Hospital, and she couldn't even breathe. She had some kind of virus, viral infection. She waited eight and a half hours before she got in to emerge down here. That's ridiculous. And this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with over here on the West Coast. And I, I know you're going to say, yeah, they're dealing with it everywhere else in Newfoundland as well. And that's true. And that's not an us versus them. That's just the unfortunate facts of the matter, isn't it? I mean, I had a family, uh, a member of my family, that sat in the emergency room for eight and a half hours just three weeks ago. So it's not about, well, it's great in St. John's and it's terrible everywhere else because the government only cares about the townies. But the reality is, I think we're facing it in a lot of places. And unfortunately so, it might be more difficult to rectify the issues in smaller remote clinics or smaller remote communities because it's whether or not we can actually get someone who wants to work in those communities. I think that's the rub. What do you think? I think if you go looking for them, there's people you can get to work. I really honestly do. Okay. But, again, like, uh, I can't overexpress enough that the people on the West Coast, in my opinion, gets the shitty end of the stick all the time, not only in health care but everything else. And, and it's time for somebody to really... But then again, where are all the fighting Newfoundlanders gone? Did they all die in World War One and Two? Because nobody seems to say anything anymore. And, and, we, and I can go on and on, but this is not the time. But like we're, the, the price of gas and everything, the PUB board in there, every second day, putting it up, putting it down. What the hell is going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to know more about that, too. That's the topic for another time. Sure, but Bill, you know what? I'll just add to it. You know, about who's fighting for who and where the leaders are that have any real clout in this province. But just very quickly, off the top of my head, in very recent memory, Premier's Fury, Ball, Williams, all members on the West Coast. And no one's got more clout or carries a bigger stick than the Premier. 
Oh, I'm not. I'm not uh, disputing that one at all. I've been voting since I was 19 years old. I voted PC. I voted Liberal. I voted NDP. And I've never seen a bloody change on this island. It's things still remain the same. Totally get it. What happened to uh, Bill? So did that just drop out, or did you hit that button, or did I? I didn't touch anything. Okay, Bill, if you had a final thought that you want to offer, please do give us a call back. I have no idea what happened there. But uh, let's go ahead and take a break on time. When we come back, the topic, the conversation, up to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Gabriel, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, my name is Gabriel. I'm speaking on behalf of Newfoundland Wrestling. Uh, I'd like to take the opportunity to uh, talk about a recent wrestling show and promote a few upcoming ones. Let's do it. All right. So um, we had a recent show. Uh, there's a, the main wrestling promotion in St. John's right now is uh, New Evolution Wrestling. Uh, last Saturday, we uh, were over at the Kitty Vitty Tap Room. Uh, we had a uh, sold-out show there. Uh, we had some really big names that participated in uh, wrestling promotions of the past, like uh, Hellraiser Justin Locke, Wild Thing Tony King, uh, as well as uh, one of our relatively new, but also one of our greatest wrestlers in uh, Jeremiah Javen. I hear from Tony King every now and then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, King of Newfoundland wrestling for years and years and years, he is. Um, Yeah, it was a sold-out show. It was probably one of our greatest shows we ever had was over at uh, at Gay Beauty Brewery last Saturday. Uh, Gabriel, just a general question. What makes a great show? Is it the interaction between the wrestlers, the refs, and the fans? Or what do you think makes a great uh, wrestling show? Uh, yeah, it would be the interaction between uh, the the fans and the people that are in the ring. Because uh, it's all about giving great entertainment. It's all about making people want to come back, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, like, these are guys, these are wrestlers, like... You still got. They learn the moves. They uh, train for years, and they're putting their bodies on the line very much for entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they does a wonderful job at it. Um, so, yeah, we had a we had a really good show last Saturday, and um, we're always promoting new shows, and that's why I'm on here today is for promoting. Um, so. We have a couple of different wrestling promotions out and about now. Um, on the NEW side of things, we have March the 11th, we have our uh, Republic Rumble event happening over at the historic CLB Armory. Mm-hmm. Um, the, for anybody who don't know, if I can explain the rules real quick, uh, Republic Rumble is kind of like... Uh, it's a battle royal, right? Yeah, it's like a battle royal almost. You yeah. uh, go over the top rope, Brophy got hit the floor for an elimination to occur. Uh, the last person standing wins the match, wins the uh, new Evolution Wrestling Golden Ticket, and tells them to a world title match at any point throughout the next year. So very quickly, how many wrestlers will start in the Republic Rumble in the ring? 
Uh, it usually involves the whole roster. Uh, we okay. have we have about ten to twelve people, I think, somewhere right. around there. And so you say the winner gets the golden ticket. And so what constitutes a uh, a shot at the world title? And where does that happen? Uh, that can happen. Um, it has to happen at a show, but it has to happen at any point within the next year. Like once a year's up, I'm pretty sure like it's all null and void then, right? Yeah. Uh, before yeah. we get into promoting more local opportunities, if I remember correctly, I've seen some stories about wrestlers who cut their teeth here have actually joined some uh, bigger circuits, we'll call them, on the mainland. Yes, uh, that is true. Um, if I bring up uh, Jeremiah Javen real quick, um, just last year sometime, around, I think it was summer 2022, he uh, ended up going down to... Uh, Nova Scotia to compete for uh, Kaizen Pro Wrestling down there, and he and he and another wrestler um, named Bulldog Brandon Hines they went over to 365 Pro Wrestling in Ontario. I'm pretty sure. Did you say his name is Bulldog? Yeah. It's been a pretty common moniker over the uh, years in wrestling. Wrestling, pardon me, in wrestling, hasn't it? Bulldog, Mad Dog Lefebvre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mm, yeah. And Bulldog was uh, one of the, the British uh, tag team guys. Can't remember. What were they called again? Uh, it was. I can picture them in my mind's eye. I used to watch a bit of wrestling when I was growing up. I haven't watched much in the recent past, but on the big stage, it's quite the spectacle. So, you know, on top of what you see in the ring, a lot of the biggest names will also have the biggest personas, and they'll have the biggest, largest, loudest characters. Who helps work with the wrestlers to create that character? Because that really does stand apart when you have that that type of persona. You're given that kind of role, and the storyline is surrounding you. Who does the work, or is it just amongst the wrestling community themselves? They try to help each other out. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure it's amongst uh, just each other. They okay. come up with their own characters and. Some of them are, um, well, I can't really say some of them, but most of them are uh, pretty larger than life. Um, probably some of the biggest names we ever gotten. Um, there's one more name I'd like to mention. He's uh, been wrestling in Newfoundland for 25 years now, over 25 years. Uh, went by many, many names like uh, over the years, like uh, Cowboy Andy Starr, um, uh, Too Damn Hype. Pardon the swearing here, um, <laughs> uh, and he's currently the uh, heavyweight champion in NEW. He goes by the Newfoundland wrestling icon Drew Douglas. That's quite yeah. the handle. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do you want to promote anything beyond the uh, the Republic Rumble or anything else? Quick, before yeah. I have a couple of questions for you. Yeah, sure. Um, so. We have the Republic Rumble, as I mentioned, in March, um, which, uh, for anybody who wants to know, uh, you can get uh, tickets for that. They're like $25. You can get tickets at uh, Games Exchange in St. John's or at Ticket Scene uh, online, ticketscene.ca. Um, the second promotion I'm going to bring up, I mentioned, um, will be ACW. Um, championship Wrestling. Uh, they have a show happening in April, I'm pretty sure. Uh, 
not much information regarding that one. Uh, just stay tuned to the ACW Facebook page, and you'll be you'll be informed. Uh, now, uh, okay. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Or was that it? One more. One more quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, there is one more show. I'd up, and that's on uh, June the third. That's when uh, uh, Inner City Wrestling is going to have their uh, first event called uh, Emergence, and that'll be taking place over at the Bonavista Cabot Stadium. Cool. Well, hopefully they continue to pack them in and they get some uh, quality entertainment. So I'm not old enough to go back to all the way to like the Bruno Sammartinos of the world or what have you. But in modern days, who are, give us just a couple of your faves. Uh, favorites from here in Newfoundland? Well, no, let's go with the big, the, the big stages, the WWFs and the like. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm pretty big i know we don't wrestle anymore but i'm pretty big on like john cena john cena's pretty cool bit of a movie star Um, these days (laughs) yeah um as far as who's wrestling full-time i'm pretty big on like seth rollins roman reigns um shinsuke nakamura is another one like there's a lot of good people in in wwe right they're big talents, uh, that's for sure. And uh, you know, people say, oh, "Well, it's all fake," and of course, some of it is. But some, you can't abs- you can't absorb every knock as if it didn't happen. For me, just a couple of quick names come to mind. Of course, Canadian Bret the Hitman Hart, a uh, bit of woohoo, bit of Ric Flair. Give me a bit of Ric Flair, the Macho Man Randy Savage. A couple of my favorites over the years, but uh, maybe a bit of Stone Cold <laughs> Steve Austin. <laughs> Good to have you on the show, Gabriel. Uh, glad you're enjoying the wrestling. And for folks who want to get tickets and all that stuff, where do they have to turn? Um, as far as tickets go, like I mentioned, for uh, the Republic Rumble event in March, uh, ticketscene.ca and Games Exchange, you can get tickets there. Uh, any more information, the, uh, there's a phone number on the poster. You just got to follow the NEW page. And for Inner City Wrestling in June, you can get those tickets once again at ticketscene.ca or you can get them at the Western Petroleum in Catalina or the Bonavista Town Hall. Love it. Thanks for the call this morning, Gabriel. Not a problem. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Yeah, and, you know, give me a bit of flying Jimmy Snooker. Oh, and I, I do. I think I mentioned this on show one time. We went to see wrestling down at the stadium, and that was uh, Superstars Wrestling, right? That little that, that show. Of course, it was uh, George Cannon, right? He was the big name in that. And Sailor Wright would have wrestled in that particular thing. Abdullah the Butcher would stick in the fork in his own forehead, and then of course there was the belly bop match, and I actually got hit. Gently, but on the foot by Haystack Calhoun, swinging his horseshoe after him and George Cannon went at it. How about that? Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's go to line number two. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, before I get on to my topic, I'm going to help you out with uh, something that was on the tip of your tongue with your last caller. I think you were looking for the British Bulldog. The British Bulldog, exactly boy, right. Baby Boy Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're 100% right. There That's there what I was looking for. Saturday morning, wrestling. I love it. Um, no, I'm explaining uh, in relation to a caller you had on earlier, and I want to make sure I have the full picture. But from what I uh, understand, there was a gentleman uh, fly fishing for sea trout on the slipway down at the city bitty gut, and someone accused them of being a poacher, and it was published in the Telegram or something like that. Is, is, are you able to fill in? Is that That's the, about the size of it, yeah. That's a good summary. Oh, okay. No, I, I just wanted to mention that um, 
Well, when it comes to sea trout in Newfoundland and Labrador, um, you know, and this person would be fishing for sea run brown trout. So uh, the season for sea run brown trout, uh, there are scheduled rivers. So there's sea trout fished in scheduled salmon rivers, and that would run from uh, like the salmon season from June, and then it extends through to October in some locations. And then there are non-scheduled uh, areas for uh, fishing sea trout. And uh, February 1st, that has opened. And the same with, you know, all trout fishing around Newfoundland and Labrador. So people are ice fishing. So uh, you are allowed to be fishing for sea trout. And this is all listed in uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada's um, Angler's Guide 2022 to 2023. And uh, in addition, I think your caller earlier mentioned that uh, you are allowed to fish in coastal waters uh, year-round. And that would be outside of any uh, caution signs that uh, DFO may have established. So uh, uh, another, I guess, good reference, in addition to the angler's guide for someone uh, who would be accusing someone of, I guess, practicing and enjoying their cultural heritage uh, and uh, accusing them of being a criminal, um, Don Hustons, a gentleman uh, in St. John's, wrote a book, and it's called Journey into Newfoundland Waters. It's about brown trout and rainbow trout and the introduction. And he lists a number of uh, sea trout locations that are popular uh, around the island. And uh, uh, Kitty Gut is one of them and many areas along the, um, you know, CBS area and all that. So, um, you know, I, I think it is offside for someone to be uh, accusing someone uh, enjoying this activity of being a criminal when the season is open and uh, before they go at it, uh, they should be informed, and before the Telegram uh, publishes publishes it, they should exercise a bit of uh, journalistic integrity before they uh, give further voice to it. Because a poacher is a pretty nasty thing to be, <laughs> you know, just from my own personal opinion, and there's lots of that goes on uh, here in the province, Lord only knows. I appreciate the clarification and the time. Anything else, Joe? Nope, that's all. Can anyone that's beat Ireland at the Six Nations? Pardon me? Can anybody beat Ireland at the Six Nations? Uh, France and Ireland is going to be a good tussle. So that's going to be the, the grand slam decider, I think. Yeah, France is going to have to play better than they did against Italy. They did almost everything they could to lose. Uh, but anyway, yeah. one and two in the world. Thanks for this, Gio. That's right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's see here. Very quickly before I get to the break, I told this lady I would put this out here for. I want to say happy birthday to Bob Young out in New Chelsea from all his besties in Heart's Delight. Happy birthday, Bob. Uh, you want me to take Leonard? Okay, sure. Let's go. Line four. Leonard, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. I was kind of intrigued with your time to the young gentleman about uh, wrestling or whatever. Great to see that uh, you're carrying on that tradition in Newfoundland. Uh, over the years, of course, uh, watched it uh, growing up when we had the two channels come on Sundays on, uh, I think it was in TV, Superstars of Wrestling with uh, George uh, Cannon and Milton Bruskin. And uh, we had a few Newfoundlanders that did pretty well. Uh, in the WWE circuit back in the day. Uh, Sadar Boyd, of course, he was tag team champions with uh, uh, Spot. They were yeah. called the Moondog. Moondog Spot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, did pretty well. Uh, Herford Law, I remember from Spanish oh, yeah. Bay, uh, did pretty well on the scene. Right. Uh, yeah, so uh, the gentleman wanted to know what the British Bulldogs, that was Davy Boy Smith and uh, Dynamite Kid. Yeah, that's right. Which was a great tag team back in the day. And 
Yeah, so I'm still watching today. I'm not into it like I was years ago when I was younger. You know what I mean? I would miss uh, Saturday night's main event or any of the pay-per-views. But now I find myself just probably getting WrestleMania for me and my daughter to watch or, like, just recently the Royal Rumble. So I'm, I'm quite interested in that. I know it's entertainment, and it's great entertainment. It uh, basically uh, sells out all these big stadiums all the time and brings in a lot of revenue and uh, a lot of entertainment for family. Uh, so, you know I mean? Well, it's massive. I mean, all you have to do is just flick on whenever there was a, a, a wrestling event on television. I mean, the support it gets is absolutely incredible. And this is not the most welcomed story here but there's also a tragedy that took place on the Trans-Canada Highway uh, just outside of Lewisport if I'm not mistaken can't remember when I'm going to say in the late 80s maybe so there was a uh, Farmer Dave Adorable Adrian Adonis and another person that were killed and they were here on tour and they had an auto accident or a collision on the highway and I think four people died three of them were wrestlers one of them was their driver I know Adrian Adonis was in it and I know a buddy that they called Farmer Dave I can't remember his real name and some other wrestler I can't remember his name oh yes boy yeah yeah that kind of brings back memories to me too as well because Adrian Adonis is kind of a flamboyant wrestler uh, dressed like a lady like like a drag queen and uh, and he's all it was a, for a big man he could wrestle I got to say and a lot of big men it's amazing uh, just watch these guys over 300 pounds how uh, agile they are in the ring and that and uh, that's amazes me I know there's uh, uh, they have to do a lot of training there's no doubt about it there is uh, times where they get do get injured uh, like any athlete right uh, but like I said it's very entertaining for me so uh, yeah, good. yeah I continue to watch it and uh like that, who knows? Another new Flander might shine one of these days, and we could see him in the WWE. I forgot about Heart for Love, and of course, Adrian Adonis' spot on the show would be uh, at his flower shop, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Too funny, exactly. man. Thanks yeah, a lot, Leonard. Funny. Yeah, okay, my buddy. All Thanks the best. Trip down memory lane. Happy to do it. Yeah, bye bye. Yeah, bye bye. Yeah. <laughs> You never know what's going to catch the attention of people here on this program. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to get some reaction to yesterday's healthcare announcement from the opposition leader as PC Dave Brazel took away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay, East Bell Island. He's the official, the uh, opposition leader. I guess I'm going to say it for the first time ever. Uh, His Majesty's official opposition leader, David Brazel. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thanks for this opportunity. No problem. Wanted to get on and talk about the uh, federal-provincial negotiations yesterday around health care. And, you know, from our perspective, and particularly my perspective here, if this is the start of addressing the health care crisis in Newfoundland, Labrador, and in our great country, then that's great and is welcome. If this is the end of it, if this is all that's being offered, and if the dialogue and the discussions end at this point, uh, we are going to have some real troubles in this country and in this province when it comes to addressing health care and solving some of the immediate uh, challenges we have in the crisis that we have. What leads you to believe there was uh, this is the end of it? Well, at the end of the day, I mean, if you, if you read what some of the other premiers have said, you know, they went in with an intention and their, their belief that there was going to be uh, three, three prongs to this. One, uh, an amount of money much more substantial than has been offered, uh, a development around changing of some policies that would be reflective of being able to give the provinces more flexibility in what they were doing, and some developing of other partnerships federally and provincially. Uh, there may have been some money offered, as we've seen. It might sound substantial, but if you look at it from a perspective of, uh, you know, cost of living, 
inflation. It'll barely cover off what the additional health costs are going to be for any province, particularly Newfoundland and Labrador, as part of that process. They haven't immediately said that this is what's going to happen. Here are the time frames as quickly as we can implement it. It doesn't say in Newfoundland and Labrador, from what we're reading, that we will have a made in Newfoundland and Labrador approach. Keeping in mind, I don't think any of us believe that you know the bureaucrats in Ottawa have an understanding of how we deliver services in Newfoundland and Labrador with our geography and our demographics, particularly when it comes around to healthcare. So there's some challenges around there. I mean, Just one second though, Dave. How could any of that commentary been attached with yesterday's announcement when, I don't know what kind of heads up any of the premiers got, but I'm not so sure anybody has really fully wrapped their mind around what the announcement means, let alone timelines for this to be achieved or benchmarks for that to be achieved. No, no, and I agree, but I've had conversations with uh, other leaders in other provinces over the last year and a half, and their intent was going in there was that there would be a lot of the other dialogue and a lot of the other issues put on the table that they'd already discussed. Don't forget, they've been asking for this meeting for two years uh, with the Prime Minister and only now have gotten it. So, yeah, I agree. While there's no, uh, the devil is in the detail here, we don't have that uh, on the attachment there. Again, and I'll, I'll reiterate, you know, this is a, a positive first step, but if this is the end of it. If they're not going to be more particulars around how we move policy changes, how we influx other supports, how we develop uh, national and provincial partnerships, uh, then this is not going to solve anything about the 136,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who don't have access to a family physician, the emergency rooms in Bonavista and Twillingate and the other dozens of places in Newfoundland and Labrador, the red alerts with paramedics, uh, and implementing you know the valued uh, recommendations of the health accord. So there's a lot of discussions here. The premiers touted it as a win. Um, I'm hopeful it's going to be beneficial to Newfoundland Labrador, but I'll determine and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, voice my opinion on whether or not this is a win when we see what the influx of cash means, the timelines, uh, how much freedom we have to you know, make a built-in Newfoundland Labrador approach to it, and if we can see immediate outcomes that give people in Newfoundland Labrador access to better health care. Sure. Uh, who are you expecting or who do you think it's incumbent upon to offer these timelines and policy changes? I assume you mean the premier. Well, exactly. But you know, I, I would have thought that uh, you know, the prime minister would have came with a structure in place saying, here's what we would uh, try to implement immediately. But do we want that, though? Pardon me? But do we want that approach to be the one taken yesterday or in the future by saying, because that was one of the concerns many premiers had. You know, some were more vocal than others. They say any strings attached is a, no, a non-starter for me. So I think the government's role with money, I do think there's national guidance required to fix the system because we have a deeply flawed system nationwide. But do we really want it to be as heavy-handed as here comes the money, but if you can't spend it where I tell you to, I'm taking it back. No, 100% agree, and we've said that. I said it yesterday morning on uh, on open on your uh, VOCM show, uh, morning show, about the fact that there has to be uh, parameters here that are flexible for Newfoundland and Labrador. But the immediate issue here is the release of the money and the time frames, other than the 10-year the, the influx. Most provinces will tell you the bulk of the money they're going to need to address health care is in the immediate uh, timelines now. In the first year, the first 48 uh, months or so, they're going to need that in the first couple of years to address the backlog the challenges from what come out of COVID and the whole the, you know, issue that we have nationally when it comes to addressing health care. So I agree that the Fed shouldn't put all these strings attached to it, but at the same time, they need to be able to say, now, here's immediately what we can do for you. Here's your influx of cash. Here's how we can change some policies. Here's how we can foster some federal-provincial uh, partnerships that can move the health care uh, agenda in the right direction here. I'm not quite sure. That hasn't been clarified yet, so are we a year away from that, two years, and the health care system gets worse and worse. 
that's that's my only concern when it comes to addressing this immediately. The influx of cash is welcomed. Nobody has said it's enough. We all realize it isn't enough. But there's other yeah. issues here around recruitment and retention and all the other issues that need to be done around a policy approach that need to be clarified. Either the provinces are given carte blanche to do their thing, which I, I, I would welcome that in Newfoundland and Labrador because of the challenges we have here uh, from a demographic and age population, chronic diseases. But if this is going to be delayed another two years, we're falling further and further behind. Yeah, well, it looks like there's an immediacy of $2 billion to be spared or shared nationally. Our cut of that is, of course very similar to the cut we get on everything, 1.7% or something. So $27 million. But what they're speaking to is pretty much the issues that seem to be top of mind for most. Emergency rooms and surgical diagnostic backlogs, uh, pediatric hospital concerns, emergency room concerns. So some of those are the number one things. You know, the recruitment issue and retention issues, of course... That's probably the most complicated thing that every province is looking at. And inside the big four bullet points as to what this health care transfer dollar is supposed to, or is intended to focus on. So expanding family health services, especially in rural and remote areas. Good one. Supporting health workers and addressing backlogs. Huge. Improving access to quality mental health and substance use services. Massive. And, of course, a distinct reference there to youth ages 12 to 25 regarding access to addiction services and or mental health services. And then, of course, the one that I think confuses me probably more than anything else is what they just simply refer to as modernizing the system and then is standardized health data how it's compiled how it's disseminated who gets to see it uh, how it's going to be used i guess that's dissemination so you know if we just went through and i'm not even sure we're fully through the hack of the meditech system you know it sounds great digitizing things for easy access for one healthcare professional or another to see your records whether it be at the pharmacy or anywhere else i get it but we got to make sure that any further move down that road comes with all the safeguards that obviously were missed. Agree 100 percent, but but the priority should be here immediate access to health care. You know the backlog in surgeries, like you mentioned, access to a family physician, all the other pro- provided services here. My concern is that we're not going to move this in the fashion quickly that it should be, and that first and foremost is not enough resources put there. But I would hope that it's written and it's clear that this can be a tailor-made, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador approach to addressing health care with the resources that are necessary. What was given to us yesterday will not even cover the cost of our inflation in our health care system, let alone let us get ahead of the challenges that we have here. So my concern is this is a great first start if this is just a first start and there's 20 other things that are going to come in the immediate future that are going to benefit a better approach to solving health care in Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm hopeful, cautiously optimistic, but... I haven't heard that because the devil is in the detail here. I'll be asking the Premier exactly to clarify a little bit more of the discussions, and hopefully we'll see from a national perspective what some of the other provinces feel uh, are beneficial here or what some of the other challenges may be. And we need to force our MPs here to push this uh, in an equitable, uh, speedy fashion so that we get access to health care in the immediate necessary timelines. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Appreciate it, Patty. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. It's David Brazel, the PC member for Conception Bay, East Belle Island, and the leader of the official opposition. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Waterford Valley. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Tom Osborne. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. 
Happy to have you on. So, of course, I imagine you just heard David Brazel, the leader of the official opposition, talking about next steps and priorities and timelines for this, you know, I guess as part of the initial flow of cash. Of course, we're talking about 5% increase over the course of five years and $210 million. But immediately your reaction to the announcement yesterday and how focused are we with the $27 million that's coming in the door, I assume, very quickly? Well, you know, it is an increase, uh, an immediate uh, uh, increase in funding for the province, which is good news. I know that overall uh, we're looking at a 20% increase in funding. Uh, There will be bilateral uh, agreements and so on. I know myself and and the Premier are set to meet with uh, Minister Duclos um, uh, in the the near future to talk about some of those uh, details and, uh, and so on. So... You know, this is uh, much-needed funding. Um, The uh, First Ministers and the Prime Minister across the country uh, had spent a considerable amount of time uh, working towards um, uh, this agreement. And obviously, I think Premiers across the country would have liked to have seen even more funding. Um, But, you know, this is good news. Uh, the the bilateral agreements will outline uh, the priority areas for for funding. Um, I know that the federal government has recognised that the province has a solid plan in place. Um, other jurisdictions across the country are looking to this province uh, based on the health accord and the plan that we have in place. And I think that plan has been recognised and and. Uh, the, what's what's laid out in the plan uh, in terms of uh, creating better virtual care, uh, connecting all residents uh, without access to a primary care physician in the short term uh, to virtual uh, recruitment and retention, improved emergency services, uh, community-based family care, uh, right. improving the health information system. These are all part of the plan laid out in, in the health accord. How nimble is this relationship? You know, I know the bilateral agreements are yet to be completely understood, but a tailor-made for this province package, the way to use the money, the way we need to use the money, because I know this, the similarities of needs and gaps and shortages are very much uh, the same across the country, but we have an aging demographic issue, we have a geographical challenges, so are we going to be able to do what we need to do versus what Ottawa thinks we should do? Well, you know, I, I think the that's the next stage in this and in, in looking at uh, bilateral agreements. But I believe, yes, um, you know, the, the Premier has uh, put a great deal of work into this uh, with his, uh, you know, the other First Ministers and the Prime Minister. Uh, Premier laid out uh, this morning on, on BOCM, for example, the fact that the federal government um, has recognized the fact that we have a huge geography uh, with a smaller population uh, population and aging demographic uh, uh, historical health issues um, and that 's a big win for the province so you know that that was uh, a result of a, a great deal of work and effort by the premier. Okay, you mentioned virtual care. It's going to be expanded as time goes by for all the reasons I think people can imagine. But we still have an issue with how many people can avail of virtual care each day. There's a cap on it. So I want to get to two cap-related issues, one with cataracts, and let's start with virtual care. Why the cap? And is there anything being done at the the political level to deal with it? Because we have doctors who can indeed provide more than 40 appointments a day and yet are unable to do so. So we've just 
we put out an RFP for virtual care that will focus on two streams. One is uh, virtual care uh, focused on primary care. The other is virtual care focused on emergency uh, department care. That RFP uh, has been put out. Uh, I know the department, um, and we invited the NLMA uh, to sit and and uh, you know uh, look at the presentations by the the companies that have uh, uh, been shortlisted. Um, the in the very near future, there will be an announcement on uh, that RFP, and that RFP will provide virtual care uh, to every resident of the province. And so that would eliminate a cap or would simply have more doctors offering the service? Uh, no, with the, the RFP. So, you know, if you look at um, other virtual services that are provided in the province, for example, uh, anybody at any time from any community uh, anywhere in the province will have access to contact uh, uh, virtually a physician under the RFP. Okay. So let's move on to the cataract cap because, you know, there's a couple of uh, implications to your overall health when you don't get your cataracts dealt with in short order. One, and this comes from the uh, Alzheimer's Association of Canada, they say that folks who get a cataract surgery within the appropriate wait time as per the national benchmarks, they, were, they reduce their chance of getting dementia by 29%, yet we have a cap in place. You hear Eddie Joyce talking about it a lot, and so this becomes further complicated. It's not whether or not, you know, your eyesight continues to deteriorate and what that means for your day-to-day activities, but even the implications, say, for instance, of dementia. So how do we consider when we hear those numbers? What do we do with the caps that are currently imposed on the doctors? So a couple of of things on that. And, you know, to outline, we've made great strides in looking at the benchmarks, you know. um, So I I will get to the the cataract issue, but just to kind of go on a, a little bit of a tangent to paint the picture of how our plan is working. We have a a deal with the Heart Institute in Ottawa, for example, because cardiac surgeries are important to the province to reduce the the wait times and and deal with the benchmark. Um, We have a plan, and based on on the plan that is in place, hip and knee uh, joint replacement, we've increased the number of surgeries. We've uh, looked at uh, outpatient surgery same day. Uh, We have uh, implemented... uh, uh, the uh, availability of surgeries in St. Anthony, uh, which is currently taking place. Uh, we have implemented the uh, uh, in Carbonier, and that will be up and running uh, within the next number of weeks. Uh, we also have uh, what the Premier um, and Dr. Connors has referred to as Heart Force One, uh, where we have a, a flight that goes around the province, bring, picks people up for uh, a same-day procedure in cardiac cath and then delivers them back to the hospital in the region, ensuring that we're not creating a backlog in St. John's. Likewise, with cataract surgeries, this year we've increased the number of out-of-hospital cataract surgeries in, in the uh, private clinics, publicly funded. Uh, that is in addition to the cataract surgeries that are available within the hospital settings. So, you know, we are focused, I know, uh, based on 
uh, speaking to one of the uh, ophthalmologists uh, that I, I ran into in the social setting literally a week ago, I said that he's been able to reduce his wait list from about two years now down to about a year uh, based on the increase in the number of cataract surgeries that we're providing out of hospital. So that is something we're looking at again. Um, you know, uh, we have a, a budget upcoming. Whether or not we'll see any further changes in the upcoming budget is yet to be seen, but it is something we're focused on. So a year, what is the benchmark for cataract surgery? Because we use the national benchmarks all the time to evaluate how we're doing. So what is that, what is that benchmark? Um... I don't have the benchmarks in front of me. I believe it's 180 days. I was going to guess 182, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I believe it's 180 on cataract. Um, but the, you know, we're, we're nearing, uh, we're, we're getting closer to that. To reduce it, you know, in, in the metro region from two years to about a year uh, is huge success over the course of the last uh, four or five months. So, you know, the aim is to get to the benchmark, um, which is why it's still on the radar and, and what further changes may need uh, to happen in that area. Uh, but it is certainly something that we're focused on. Uh, I'll, I'll correct myself here. The benchmark for cataract surgery nationally is 112 days. Eastern Health currently, the number of first eye cataract procedures completed, 380. So we're not quite there. Last one. There's lots of reference here to the compilation of data. So whether it be adding up the numbers of doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and the like, but of course it's our personal medical information. It all makes sense, and this actually came out of the Cameron Inquiry for digital medical records, and we haven't fully got there, but we just came through or are still dealing with the aftermath of the hack of the Meditech system. So can you give us any information as to what has been done, any safeguards installed? Because if we're going completely down that path, it's becoming more and more important than ever for that information to be protected. Absolutely. And, you know, that is something that uh, both the uh, government and our health authorities, including uh, Nilchi, has been focused on uh, putting those safeguards in place. And the largest governments in the world, the largest corporations in the world are always um, uh, subject to potential hacks. Uh, they happen every day uh, to the largest companies in the world. So we have to continuously upgrade and monitor and, uh, you know, put a focus on, on the required uh, firewalls and securities that need to be in place. And that's something that has been heightened uh, as a result of the the recent hack. What we are doing um, with the health information system, and that's another uh, process that we are currently undergoing is the health information system province-wide. Um, and as the, the Premier said, some systems in some of the hospitals are still operating on MS-DOS. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the focus for this province is to ensure that every patient in the province has, uh, every health professional uh, that requires access to a patient's records will have access to a patient's records uh, regardless of where they live in the province, if there's a patient uh, that has been um, referred, say, you know, from Cornerbrook to St. John's is the example that I've used in the past, uh, that we no longer have to print off a copy of their file and, and fax it or send it in, uh, that uh, the patient's file will be accessible immediately. If you've got a, an individual who is traveling uh, the province and not in their, their own uh, region, 
uh, and run into an, a medical emergency, uh, there will be access to their file without delay. Okay. So the health information system will modernize the, the system um, and, and help patients have access to their own health journey as well. Uh, very quickly, what lessons have we learned from RFPs? Because when we hired PhoneMed to provide 811 services, it came at a very dear cost. About 82 bucks per call It's going to go all the way to $92 per call in 2027. So we're paying dearly for that service. And why do we need an RFP for virtual care? If a doctor wants to provide it, why can't they just go ahead and do it, you know, through the arrangement they have with the college, for instance? Why do we need an RFP? So when we're looking at uh, phone med or 811, uh, there was one tender on that, um, you know, which limits it's it's an essential service. Um you know, it has absolutely proven itself over COVID or during uh, during the pandemic. Um, it helps reduce the number of, of visits to emergency departments, um, for example. Um, you know, so it is essential. I, I don't think anybody would argue uh, the importance of 811. Um, it's not the importance. It's how much we're paying for it, though. And you've acknowledged that on this program before. You know, when we get one response, maybe it's time to go back to the well, because if we pay $82 to phone med and the recommendation is go see a doctor, which we possibly will get to see a doctor so they can charge MCP, we're kind of paying a double in some respect. But very, very concisely, why do we need an RFP on virtual care? So, I mean, going back to PhoneMed, and, and I will acknowledge that I would like to see a, a more competitive price on that. And, and the next time we go to tender on it, uh, hopefully we'll have more than one bidder. But, you know, the, the stats show that 10% of calls are referred to uh, an emergency department or, or a, a physician. So if, you know, we're reducing the number of visits to emergency departments or physicians, while those that are referred after they call 811, uh, you know, we're paying for the service at 811 and and at the emergency department, we're diverting 90% of the calls potentially. In terms of virtual care for physicians, we need a consolidated um, approach to ensure that every resident of the province has access to virtual. Um, you know, physicians currently um, can offer virtual. Some do and some don't. Um, we, uh, you know, through the RFP, every resident of the province will have access to a consolidated, uh, coordinated virtual um, application. I appreciate the time, Minister. I'm late for the break, but thank you for this. My pleasure. Again, Patty, thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's uh, Tom Osborne, the Liberal member for Waterford Valley, of course, the Minister of Health Community Services. Break time. When we come back, Neil's going to talk about the Southern Labrador Ferry, Chris about services in healthcare outside of the province, or pardon me, outside of the city, and Jackie's looking for some Labatt Blue swag. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Neil Pike. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. As, uh, you probably see a copy of the email that I sent off to the minister and our uh, MHA, and which Lisa's our uh, Labrador representative in the uh, in the house. Lisa Dempster, yes, I, I forwarded it to Dave so he could connect with you. I did see it, and it's all about where the ferry lands, right? Or docks? Uh, yes, uh, when they uh, when they uh, renewed the contract for the old Apollo, you know, the last couple of years she was there. And when you bought the uh, Kayak W on board, yeah. uh, the winter months, she was always based out of uh, Blancebon because St. Barb usually freezes up because of the ridge across Anchor Point. Now, 
according to what I've been told, uh, in the in the recent contract, uh, the ferry was supposed to be based out of Blast Bong for medevac reasons if there was ever an emergency. And when St. Barb freezes in, she's supposed to make her trips from Blast Bong to Cornbrook with the assistance of the ice packer if need be. But, uh, you know, if we got a, a medical situation here or, uh, you know, an emergency, a disaster or anything, she's in St. Barb, caught inside, to which St. Barb freezes in. Uh, you know, uh, where do the people on the coast turn? Because everyone here now is talking about the ferry, how she's being stationed in St. Barb, but nobody can get any answers from the government or the company. Yeah, and of course, uh, it may indeed cost some additional travel time, which of course, of course, costs people money. There's not always an icebreaker available when you need it. So that's a good question. Uh, I did see the email. I know it's also to a couple of different people, uh, the representative at Woodward's, Lisa Dempster, and the transport minister. No response as of yet, Neil? Uh, no, I never got no response. And uh, I, I tried before, and I never got any response. But in that email, I just wanted to elaborate on one little thing. You know, we, you're just on with two, uh, you know, two of the leaders, and they're talking about health care. Our hospital here in Fort Hill, or our clinic, is down to three nurses, maybe down to two in the months to come. they got to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week on shift work and calling. Now, most of our appointments are at St. Anthony and Cornerbrook. And usually the doctors in St. Anthony, usually they do their appointments in the morning. So you got a lot of people here. In order to get to their appointment in St. Anthony, if she left here, the ferry left here at 8 o'clock in the morning, they got a good chance of getting to their appointments and getting back the next morning. Yeah. If not, they got to go a day prior, and they got to come back on the third day, which causes them, you know, two days of meals, two days of hotel, and, you know, there's a lot of people that just can't afford that. I would have no earthly idea why it's based out of St. Barb this winter versus every other winter, as far as I can remember, in Blanc Blanc. But I will follow up directly with the minister's office about this, see if I can get you an answer. And if I do, I'll talk about it on the air. And I'll even send you whatever information I get via email. I would really, really appreciate that, uh, Patty, because it's time for somebody to... You know, the government's got the answer to the people, and the people here are talking, but they just can't get answers. Let's see, let's see what I can find out. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Neil. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, that's a fair question. It does add some different complications. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, you know, coming to this province now for the first time is the federal liberals' carbon tax structure. We formerly had a bilateral agreement that had our own carbon tax, which was only applied to fuels and not to home heating fuels. So, and all the money, of course, was revenue stream for the government. Now we're on the federal uh, scheme. People have been asking me, you know, exactly how it works, and that's an excellent question. Uh, People in Alberta have been on that particular structured carbon tax program, so we'll get a bit more information about how that works, and then maybe we'll sneak in a few questions about inflation. Maybe help us understand the difference between overall inflation numbers, food inflation, when we talk to the professor of economics at the University of Calgary, Trevor Tome, after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to a professor of economics and the economist at the University of Calgary. That's Trevor Tome. Good morning, Professor Tome. You're on the air. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you back on the show, sir. So, I get peppered with a lot of questions regarding carbon tax. I can tell you that much. And we haven't been on the federal scheme, so there's lots of fairly general but looming questions about how it works. Basically, we don't get our first climate action incentive checks till July. Individuals receive quarterly payments of $164, an additional $82 if a second adult lives in the home. Households also get $41 for each child who lives in the home, meaning a family four gets an annual payment of thirteen twelve. Those numbers are different province to province who are on the federal scheme. Do we know why? Is it based on population or what is it? So those numbers are very different. Actually, the highest here in Alberta with a family of four getting uh, 1,544. And then in PEI, it's going to be the lowest at 960. And those differences are due to how much fuel is actually purchased in each jurisdiction. So the government tries to match up those numbers with how much revenue is being raised from the carbon tax. And Newfoundland uh, and Labrador, Saskatchewan and Alberta are really up there at the top just because of the amount of fuel that we use, primarily transportation and um, home heating being the two dominant ones. Okay, so very fundamental questions. In this province, you would pay the carbon tax if you got some diesel for your rig or uh, unleaded gasoline for your car, but we weren't paying the carbon tax on our home heating fuels. Now we will be. So just in general terms, does every individual, adults, and the, the issues that we spoke to for each child, does everyone get it regardless if you heat your home with furnace oil or natural gas or hydroelectricity or whatever the case may be? Is it just an automatic uh, rebate to all? That, that is exactly right. That rebate is tied only to how big your family is. So if you're a single individual, then you'll receive the amount uh, there for Newfoundland and Labrador residents of 656 per this coming year. It, adding to that based on the number of kids that you have and so on. And then there's a boost for living outside of major metropolitan areas. So people within St. John, for example, will receive about 10% less than people living in uh, more of the remote communities. And so that's the only difference. It's not tied to how much gas you actually buy or how many vehicles you have or how you eat your home. So if you're on electric heat, you're really not affected by the upcoming uh, change to carbon pricing in Newfoundland and Labrador. But if you use heating fuel, then you will be. But these two families uh, would receive the same amount back in terms of that rebate. Are there any industries that get an exemption? For instance, how does it work with the trucking industry in Alberta? And consequently, you know, for people in this province who are fishing, what kind of exemptions are in place, or if any? So that, yeah, that, that is a great question. So not Every activity is covered in the same way. Some types of emissions, I'm thinking about methane in particular, is really difficult to price. And so depending on the industry and the nature of the emissions, you're covered in different ways. So I think about the federal fuel charge here as as really affecting fuel that you purchase. Think of it as retail gasoline, uh, natural gas, but it also affects things like uh, aviation, um, propane, kerosene, things like this. And so depending on whether or not you purchase those fuels, it's going to affect you in in different ways. And so for, for fishing, for example, the fuel that's purchased um, for activities in, in that sector, that's going to be affected by uh, the carbon tax change, although there there is a, a carbon tax in Newfoundland and Labrador applied to uh, many of those fuels. It's just I think the big difference here that is going to change in July is home heating. 
Yeah, I mean, there's big debates here as to whether or not many people can absorb an additional level of taxation. So we don't pay carbon tax on it now. I think come April, the price on the carbon tax on gasoline is going to move to around 13 cents. So does that mean that when the federal carbon tax comes to roost here, that the entirety will, will be added? Like, for instance, as opposed to zero, it'll be automatically an additional 13 cents? Well, in, on uh, April 1st in Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, and Saskatchewan, then the gasoline charge there will rise to 14.3 cents uh, per liter. In Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, it'll be the same rate, but that won't kick in until July 1. So there's a little bit of a delay between when the federal backstop kicks in. Uh, but then once it does in these three Atlantic provinces, then everything will be aligned and with the other backstop provinces. Then it ratchets, ratchets up every April 1st. Uh, but here it increases to 14.3 on July 1st this year. So when that happens, and so that will be the uh, total amount of carbon tax on fuels like uh, diesel and gasoline. But does that mean that we can anticipate 13, 14 cents in full, all one fell swoop on furnace oil, for instance, to be added right away? So on fuel, it is a slightly different uh, rate that's applied. So if it's a kerosene-based heat, for example, it's about 17 cents per liter. So the rate's tied to how much emissions the burning of that particular fuel source is associated with. And the increase on July 1st will go from zero to that full amount if it's a fuel not currently covered by the provincial uh, existing carbon tax. And so gasoline that's purchased for transportation, there's already something baked in there. Um, I think it's about 11 cents per liter now. And so only the difference will um, be observed on on July 1st, about three cents per liter change there. Okay. So we'll figure all that out. The comment is that people get back about 90% of what they pay in carbon taxes. Is that working out the way they they talk about it in Alberta, for instance, where you live? Well, every household does uh, pay a different amount, depending on how much fuel is purchased. So a family that has a detached home, say, and two vehicles, you know, they're, they have kids and they need to drive them around, they'll be using a lot more fuel than someone who lives in a condo downtown who walks to work, uh, for example. But the rebates tied just to the overall average amount of energy use. And so different people benefit or not depending on their circumstances. But overall, on the whole, the amount that is returned really has been 90% of what's collected. And they do try and estimate this. They don't know exactly how many dollars will flow in for the year. But when they you know, calculate what's came in and what was paid out, any difference from the 90%, they make up the following year. Okay. So it's pretty mechanical that that 90% will be achieved, at least when you include the corrections in the following year. Uh, let's move on to inflation, if you have a moment. So help sure. us understand the difference between the general inflation rate, and it's come down a little bit, no ordinary what the Bank of Canada subscribes to, or many Canadians, but help us understand the difference between the general inflation number and food inflation, because there's a wide gap within. Nothing's easy to talk about when we talk inflation, but it doesn't come as fundamental as supply chain issues and droughts and floods in California, Las Salinas, or what? How do we understand the difference between the two? 
Well, inflation overall is an average of the price changes across all of the different products and uh, goods and services that we purchase. Food and fuel are particularly important drivers of overall inflation uh, right now in, in all provinces right across the country. And how it affects the overall average is, is based on how much of that item we buy. So in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, for example, the average household spends about 17% of their overall budget on food. And so when food prices rise, there's both that direct effect on, on the prices that you see at the at the grocery store, but then there's the effect overall on measured inflation just because it's such a large, nearly one-fifth uh, share of that overall consumer price index that we try and measure. So the two are very much uh, related just because one's an average. Uh, and then food inflation, you know, that's just the price change of that particular product category. Someone wants me to ask you if there's any implication regarding inflation and the carbon tax. Yeah, the, the two are related. I think it is uh, an interesting conversation. Carbon pricing is meant to increase the price of fuel in order to provide an incentive to change behavior. And, and fuel is in a, a relatively large share of our overall spending. It's its effect on inflation, though, is relatively small because it's only a gradual change in the carbon tax. So each April, it ratchets up a little bit, adding a little bit to measured inflation. Over time, those small changes do add up to a pretty meaningful change in the level of prices, even though the effect on inflation itself is is pretty small, but that doesn't mean it's not making items more expensive. Uh, it certainly is when you add up all of the many changes over several years. Uh, I don't know. I can't uh, possibly ask you to do this quickly, but maybe you can. So for the first time ever, we're probably going to see a rough transcript of the deliberations from the Bank of Canada behind its most recent interest rate hike, which is interesting in and of itself. So up 25 yeah, basis yeah. points last time to 4.5. You know, it's all an effort to control inflation, even though these moves might take 18, 24 months wants to actually have an appreciable effect on the ground. You know, you add those numbers to the fact that household consumer debt is at a record high in this country, excluding mortgages. So your thoughts on how the Bank of Canada has proceeded here with eight straight hikes to 4.5? Well, I, I think they are in a difficult position like every central bank. A lot of what has led inflation to rise to the highs that it did last year were foreign developments, especially disruptions uh, between Ukraine and and Russia leading fuel to rise rapidly and many agricultural prices as well. And that just cascades through a lot of things that we buy because energy is such an important input. And there's not a lot that the that the central bank here or elsewhere can do about those particular prices, but it only has this one tool at its disposal and that's interest rates. So it's it's ratchet uh, ratcheted them up trying to lower consumer spending both on things that we borrow in order to purchase, but as you noted it's also going to lower people's disposable incomes, especially those with variable rate debt or variable rate mortgages. Uh, that will in time uh, bring prices down because it's going to lower the demand for goods and mm -hmm. services. We'll see how successful it is. But you know, I kind of think that while they started late and that required pretty rapid increases in interest rates, we've kind of landed at where we're probably going to hold for this year. So I don't anticipate much more, and they're going to wait to see what their past rates actually 
did um, over the coming year, and that'll be really important to watch. Yeah, the forecast, Mr. Macklin says, back to around 2% mid-24 remains to be seen, but I'm curious to see those uh, that transcript or those deliberations. Always appreciate your time, Professor Tom. Thanks for this. My pleasure. Anytime. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye now. That's Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary, Trevor Tom. Let's take a break. Chris wants to talk about the lack of services outside of town. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Chris, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Patty. Hello. Colin, uh, now with regards to uh, an issue, and uh, let's try to get to it fast. I want to give you the scenario, okay? First, your father lives down on the south coast, okay? Got to go down to past Harbour Britain that way and get his ferry to a small community he lives in. Yep. All right? He's feeling unwell. He goes to see his doctor. He's sent up to Grand Falls. My God, you've got cancer. Anyway, they send him to St. John's to see the oncologist. They get out there, decide, what are we going to do with you? We're going to treat you with radiation. We're going to treat you with chemo. They said, well, let's treat him with chemo. And the chemo that he needs is really a, is a, is a toxic chemo. And most chemos, anyway, are hard on the veins and everything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so he's, uh, so his, your father's aware of this line that they put in the chest to help ease the discomfort of the chemo on your veins. And he mentions it to him out there. And they say, yeah, okay, well, what you can do is you can travel to Cornbrook to get in. So he has to travel home, back down the south coast, wait for a call, come on back up out of it, bypass Grand Falls, go over to Cornerbrook, get this line put in, then come back to home again, and then come back up when he's ready for his chemo. Okay. All that traveling for a line, which could have been inserted in Grand Falls by a radiologist. Right. I think I'm understanding the scenario. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, and this is the scenario that a lot of people in the central area have to go through. You either get the line put in in, corner, in St. John's or it's in Cornerbrook. There's nothing in the central area for all the people in central Newfoundland. And we have a high count of cancer in this, in this place. Uh, the internist even said to, said to me and myself, the ones who were taking care of me, they said, uh, they said Chris, my God, there's some uh, whole pile of cancer in this area. Never seen nothing like it. We need a we, we we had a radiologist here one time that was able to do that, but it just wasn't offered here as such. But but was able to do it. It's it's not a hard procedure, you know. It's only like a, a thirty minute procedure, forty minute procedure to put this in, put in one of these lines. All, all it does is it's called a portacast, is what it's called, and it goes underneath the skin, and it's there and it's there long term for people getting chemo, and it's just, it's a lifesaver for people because I had my chemo started in my arm. And it burned, the first uh, the first treatment burned my arm, and my arm burned for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I I got the portacathine after that, and what a difference is like day and night. People shouldn't have to be traveling all these distances, Cornerbrook of all places, Cornerbrook in the winter time. Enough said. You know, you know what I'm saying. My point: people having to travel over and be going into a storm possibly to get in so that they can get the line. It's dangerous. Why can't we have that here in Grand Falls? We have we had internal medicine. We have you know we have neurology. We have uh, gynae. We have uh, cardiology. We have uh, oh my God, the list goes on and on. What we have here, and we got a chemo unit right here in our in our town. You know, it's it it just doesn't make sense. And I I called Tom Osborne. I wish I got on the phone before you could talk to Tom Tom Osborne. I called Tom Osborne, never got back to me. No. Yeah. This is an important point. Like, everything that people are saying here this morning is not open on. It's either the East Coast or the West Coast. That's it. 
Well, no, I don't think so. I think when you're talking to someone from the West Coast, obviously they'll focus in on where they live. So it, it, it takes someone from Central to talk about the, the gaps in services in, in Central because you know what it's like. It's people will focus in on and be concerned with what's right in front of them. So what's mm. concerning to someone in Stephenville might not be the same concern shared by someone living in, in Bishop's Falls. So that's why we're pleased when people call from different regions because you know the issues where you live. You know, I try to understand these issues. We have a cancer department here, like, you know, a chemo department here, I should say. You know, I've been into it, unfortunately, you know, but the the thing is, and we should have one here in Central. That way you got one on the East Coast, Central, and West Coast, so that the people from the Bayvert East and the people from, let's say, uh, down in Lewisport West can go in there, get their line put in, because that's where they're going to come for their chemo. Right. How long ago was it that you lost that particular healthcare professional? I think you said you had a radiologist. Uh, I don't know. If we lost a healthcare professional as such, but we did have a healthcare. We did have a radiologist. Uh, I was told by some of my friends who uh, that uh, that was able to do that. It's it's not a hard job to do anyway. You know, it's it's, it's just to put a line down. I, I worked as a nurse for twenty seven years. Okay. And I've assisted in many lines going in people down into their hearts, into their lungs. It's not a hard. It's not a hard procedure. It really isn't. Where did you uh, work for twenty-seven years? All in the one area, one hospital, or what was it? One hospital. I worked uh, sixteen years ICU, nine years emerge and dialysis. Fascinating. How long have you been retired? I've been retired now uh, about five years. I got two years out of it before cancer got me. Boys, boys, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, oh, I, know. Yeah. There's imp- I thought it was an important story when, and I'll just pick your brain on this one as being a male nurse, is. There was, for the first time ever, a full male nursing team on 4 North B there a few weeks ago. And then we've heard stories about, uh, it used to be there'd be about a 1% increase year over year of males in nursing schools. The males yeah. only represent some 9% of nurses nationwide. But now they're seeing yeah. some 20 to 40% male representation in nursing schools. What do you say to a fella out there who is maybe considering a, a profession, uh, pardon me, a discipline inside of healthcare, including a registered nurse? Oh, it's a great job to go into, uh, great people to work with, you know, the, the pay is half decent. Uh, hours are crappy because, uh, well, you have to do, you know, you're doing shift work, uh, you know, and like, for instance, and then sometimes, you know, you're told at the end of the morning after finishing your 12 hours, well, you've got to stay because we can't fill your position right now. You know, and uh, that's happened to me. And I'm there at 12 o'clock in midday or trying to give a report to a nurse falling asleep. You know, it's not safe. It's not healthy. Uh, but uh, I think things are changing in regards to that to some degree with the management. So I'm hoping it is anyway, because if you don't take care of your nurses, you know, they're gone. Yeah, and yeah. in many respects, no today. yeah, in many respects, the cornerstone of the healthcare system, I would think, certainly registered nurses would say. So, did you ever yeah. feel any of the stigma that people thought, well, nursing is women's work, not men's work? Did you ever feel any of that or hear any of that during your 27-year career? No, no, I can't Good. say that. No, I, you know, I, I've been, uh, I've been, how do I say, turned down from a few women when I'm trying to set them up on an EKG or something like that, or, you know, if, you know, and they're they're shy. They're bashful, you know, and, and and I say to them, I'm quite honest about it, and I'm saying, leave your modesty at the door. It's not going to do you any good in here because we can't help you if you're going to be that way. Because you, know, you have the same training. You know, I like I left my modesty at the door when I come in as a patient. Well, I mean, there's not really much in the way of options there, is there? Uh, It's good to have you on the show. And the conversation about where services need be is absolutely one we're welcome to entertain on this program. So we're glad you made time for us today, Chris. 
And I wish you well. It's really important so people aren't traveling either from the way, because I would have had to travel almost a thousand kilometers to get a line. Mm -hmm. And you know, and it's needless, it it shouldn't happen. I appreciate the time. Hospitals that are there that can do it is not a heavy, it's not a big procedure. Understood. All right, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. uh, Full show there today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. All of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters, you're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.